To the podcast that looks up into the night sky to see our logo shining brightly, races out of our hidden lair, saves you from the maniacal clutches of contemporary pop culture, and ferries you safely to the best movies, TV, games, toys, and more of the most radical decade in history. We're your hosts. I'm Ben. And who are you? I'm Chris Mann. <laughs> Tell all your friends. Who are you? <laughs> so good. Uh, how's it going, man? Fantastic. Lovely. Great. Wonderful. Very excited for two reasons. Two reasons. In the air. It is the last episode. This is like field day on the last day of school. It's crazy. The tests are done. You're here for just all of the joy. See your friends one last time before you all run out the door for summer. And we're talking about such a fun thing. Oh my God, yeah. Freaking... Batman. Well, and like Come on in now. the real world, I'm driving around and I'm seeing I'm seeing graduation parties. I'm seeing students posing in little cap and gowns for their yeah. photos and stuff. Like it's happening. Graduation is now, and it, it is. You're right. It's bittersweet. It's our last episode of junior year, season mm. three. It's been an awesome season. We're gonna revisit it after math class. But hey, you know, because it's bitter because you and I are school nerds. We like learning. We're sitting in the front of the class. Hands are in the air all the time. But summer break is also pretty awesome. Like, it's kind of nice to go tear it up. I don't know about you. I was good at school, but I only tolerated it. I did not put any more effort into it than I needed to. Little Chris was out the door to go do whatever he pleased. So, yeah, I am. I'm all ready for that summer break, uh, that nice little hiatus, because you get a recharge. And then we'll be back in the fall and we'll be like just raring to go and ready to dive into more topics. But a thousand percent getting ahead of ourselves. We're talking about this one. And even before that, it's homeroom. So we got to continue to shoot the breeze. And I feel like, okay, I know Ben, he's got 14 topics. He has them in some sort of ascending order of like truth bombiness, crazy reveal. How close am I? Look, we are the hosts of the preeminent 80s <laughs> pop culture variety podcast. We got to walk the walk. We can't just talk the talk. I got to be in the 80s. Yeah. 247, my man. Okay. What I you got, got two for things us? for you. I rewatched one movie recently that I haven't seen in several years hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Running Man. Oh, my God. That's such a good movie. <laughs> it's so bad, but so good. Uh, what do you remember of this movie? Like, tell me, you seem to have a positive reaction already. Oh, my God. All of the quotes. I mean, this is like pure Arnold quote, the was Sub-Zero, now Plane Zero. <laughs> yeah. Killian, I'll be back. Only in a rerun. Uh, who loves you and who do you love? Come on, light bulb. Come on, Christmas tree. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> you have to split. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So oh, good. There's so many. It is 80s pulpy. So fun. It's oh, such man. a. You said it great. It is like rewatching it now as an adult. It is a terrible movie. It is bad. But it's so fun. Like, it's such a fun, bad movie. Oh, yeah. Best way possible. And, like, that, like, vision of the future that only the 80s would do where you're like, 
but like, yeah, it's just That's exactly so good. what I had to write down is I love so many movie portrayals in the 80s of the dystopian future with like yeah. this, the escape from New York and L.A. Back and to the Max. future too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. RoboCop. Like, I, I just love dystopian future perspective from the 80s. Yeah. And that when you revisit them, the 80s future is like 1999. Like, right. It's, it's, it's all this will crumble yeah. in a decade. Oh, man. But that was a great revisit. The other one, which we teased on an earlier episode, is it finally came out on HBO, the first two episodes of Gremlin's Secret of the Mogwai. You know, I saw that pop up. I did not watch it yet. Uh, I'm going to assume you have. I watched the first two episodes right away. Hot takes. Yeah, it's going to be a hot take. I don't know who this show is for. Okay. I, I don't I don't understand. Okay. And yeah. I think it's really timely that we just talked about He-Man Revelations. Yeah. Because that was like clearly for the fans who grew up with He-Man and wanted like a grown-up He-Man story. Right. This takes place in like ancient China, like long before Gizmo ends up in New York. So there's zero nostalgia. Like there's no stories about the original characters or anything that happened in the late 80s, early 90s with Gremlins 2. So there's no like nostalgia factor. And the writing is like definitely for kids who are still too young to see the original movie. Like, it would still be traumatizing. That makes sense. Yeah, like, if it's supposed to be, like, a gateway to bring in a new generation, it's like, if this is cutesy-kidsy, that is, like, a huge jump to putting a gremlin in a blender. (laughs) (laughs) Or the old lady that gets launched. I mean, she's a hag. Deagle, 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 But the old hag that gets launched out into the street. And then didn't the girl's father die in a chimney dressed as yeah. santa yeah a whole speech which is weird they open the cartoon <laughs> series with that speech i don't know yeah. why it's really I mean, the death of the father it, in know, the chimney they show listen no. we gotta bring the kids in early and then we you know what we shock them and then we soften the blow with like cutesy <laughs> right right yeah. Yeah. and it's just it's hard too because like we just came off of talking about how like how good revelations animation was in he-man and like this past weekend was the opening weekend for the spider-verse sequel which is like some of the best animation mm ever mm-hmm. and the animation is just like meh it actually reminds me a little bit of like really early avatar the airbender okay which is not terrible 20 no, years ago i was gonna say yeah but that was like almost two decades ago that was made this is right now you would expect something yeah. good especially like for a tentpole property that like has a lot of nostalgia right so Interesting. you know unfortunately I mean, if you've listened to our episode on Gremlins, you know how much we love this property in this movie. And unfortunately, even for a big fan like me, like I, I don't have a motivation to go back. The first two didn't pull me in to want to keep watching, and I'm kind of kind of bummed. I was kind of excited. It's like our third episode. It is so good. Like it's really fun. I love our unsolved mysteries episode, but like we do some things not great in it in terms of like just. It's rough, okay? Like, there's nothing yeah. bad about it. It's just, like, we miss a few key things, and we just didn't do, like, some important fact-checking. And, you know, lessons learned. It was our second episode. But by three, no, it was five. It was episode five. I'll take that back. But by episode five, we hit the ground running. That is such a good episode it's a great about episode. Gremlins. Go listen to it. Oh, my gosh. We had so much fun talking about it. Here's the beautiful thing, Chris, that I'm so excited about. Okay. When you and I pick an 80s movie that we both love, we do some of our best work. Mm. And we're also at the end of the school year. Stress and tensions are low. We're laid back. We're cash. We're getting ready to sip, uh, I would say, those like little high sugar plastic grenade juices yeah, by the pool. Yeah, grenade juice. Yeah. And I think we might be on the cusp of some of our best work in this episode. 
It's a great 80s movie. You are assuming I love this movie, and I'm not really here to, because I love to hate on this movie, and I'm just going to tear it down worse than Never Ending Story, which I have to say, I also went and re-listened to. It's actually a really good episode. Yeah, no, it's fair. But it's, it's I am good. not it's nice good. to that movie, but it is done in an entertaining way, so... So are you going to entertainingly cut down Batman and Bruce Wayne here? I am going to destroy everything about this movie. I'm, I'm going to destroy this movie. Everyone will be in tatters. <laughs> I will be the destructor of everything you hold dear. I don't know why Batman's so, killing everyone. but <laughs> No, that's like it's one rule. Let's grab some throat lozenges so that we can do that voice all night. <laughs> yeah, yes, please. And make our way down the hallway to history class to get this episode underway. Hold on, I have my batarang. I'm gonna shoot it at this like <laughs> beam up on the ceiling, and I'm just gonna like catapult myself into history class. Will you carry me like a damsel in distress? That would be wonderful. How much do you weigh? 108 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> as again, as a kid, that's like not a really big joke, but as an adult, yeah. I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. That's such good, like smooth humor. I thought that was so funny in the rewatch. Yeah, so good. Oh, if you, classmates, if you haven't caught our references yet, we are revisiting mm. 1989's Batman, oh. the movie, the film, the experience, Batmania. Yeah. And this is going to be fun. Chris, this is, I'm swinging for the fences here because this is one of my like top three IPs of my life. I That's love right. Batman. Mm-hmm. But much like you undertook the heroic effort with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Steven Spielberg, or I undertook He-Man. It's a broad, giant IP, and we got to oh. focus. We're oh, here boy. just to talk about the movie. There's going to be a little, a couple little tiny tangents, because you don't get the movie with some other things happening, but I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best. Rain it in. This Batman verse is all fair game. Like, we're going to talk about this timeline, sure. but we might veer into some of the other ones, of course. But we, we, we can't go into, like, the Nolans and the DC oh, universe God. and the other reboots, and the, we'd be here forever. It'd be amazing, probably, but long I didn't, time. Maybe I didn't do comprehensive enough research, but there have got to be dedicated podcasts, many, just about Batman. Certainly could be, but the animated series, anybody mentioned that one yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. my gosh. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's get into it. I don't know what this movie is. Can you give me a high-level synopsis of it, Ben? What oh, is, my gosh. What is 1989's Batman? I was just about to, like, dive into history. <laughs> this is how insulting it is. It's like, I feel like it's on the level of Michael Jackson, like, where I was just like, every listener knows the Batman movie from 1989, but that's a great point. That's not necessarily true. Or it's been a while, you know? So, 1989's movie, Batman, out of Warner Brothers from the DC Universe of comic books, is probably one of the most revolutionary superhero movies ever made. Mm. And that's a broad statement, but we'll, we'll talk about some predecessors. It tracks. It turns a once very lighthearted world and story into the much more dark, gruff, grounded world of superheroes that we've really come to know in the last 30 years. It's written by Sam Hamm. It is directed by Tim Burton. And Top Build stars Jack Nicholson as the main bad guy, the Joker, Mm. and stars Michael Keaton, once a comedy actor. So this is going to be really interesting getting into this. Oh, yeah. As our caped crusader, Batman. Yeah. We also have Kim Basinger coming in to play Vicky Vale, the love interest and reporter of the film. And also Billy D. Williams coming in hot off Empire Strikes Back. I forgot Billy D was in this Playing movie. Playing Harvey Dent. I was yeah. like, whoa, of course. And don't forget, Jack Pally. 
Awesome. Give me number one. Podcast host. (laughs) So good. So good. Um, And last but not least, as we tend to see so commonly with Batman stories these days, this is not an origin story of Batman. It is earlier in his career, but it is not a year one like we see so often Mm. with the Nolan trilogy, with the Batman and Robert Pattinson. But it's a very interesting, different flavor and take. And we're going to get into it because it is amazing how it came and what it did to pop culture. Oh, yeah. Uh, so let's talk with the with the Godfather. Bob Kane is the writer and comic book artist who invented Batman. As a kid, he was very intrigued by early inventions of machinery, locomotives, steam engines, flying machines, and automobiles. And studying some early sketches of those and like blueprints, he was reading a book by Leonardo da Vinci uh, when he was at the age of 13. And da Vinci had this quote, your bird shall have no other wings than that of a bat. And that quote inspired him to think of Batman. Wow. I never knew where that came from. I thought that was pretty cool. I never heard that quote. That's great. As a bat, as a, I don't know what you call us, but as a bat head, I, I loved actually knowing where Bob Kane got the idea. Killing it, Leo. Killing it. You know what? That guy might be a genius. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> he just, Leonardo, you might have been a genius. So Kane publishes the first detective comic in 1939, May, detective number 27 for Batman. And originally, Batman was sort of this dark creature of the night. However, over the following decades, Batman evolved into this campy, ridiculous, comic-y character, especially in the 60s for the TV show Batman and Robin with Adam West any thoughts on that comic series? Oh, I mean, that's, I think, especially growing up, that was what was on everybody's mind. Everybody knew that show. You either grew up with it in the 60s or like me as a kid of the 80s, it was on like Nick at Night or something. Like it would just show up and it was absolutely ridiculous, but it was Batman. It was superheroes. But oh my gosh, the the tights, the oh my ridiculous God. characters, that movie... The bat shark repellent and like right. that. Oh, it was so over the top. Bright and poppy and colorful. And it's like back yeah. when like the gags, like the villains would be holding like bank bags that had the dollar symbol on yes. it or like holding a bomb that says bomb on it. Yes. Like that kind of stuff. Oh, 100%. Um, I, I actually, is a very quick tangent, at a uh, Comic-Con one year, I actually got to go see Adam West and Burt Ward talk. Oh. And they were delightful to hear talk. Adam West swaggering onto the stage, big sunglasses. <laughs> they were so great to talk about their time there. That's cool. I like this because it bridges our Turtles episode because like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started off very dark and mm-hmm. gritty with the first comics and then got really light and poppy. And it wasn't until much later that we got darker Turtles again. Yeah. So this all sort of kicks off and there's a great documentary out there if anybody wants to watch it. That's like a really good overview of the origin of this movie, but um, we're going to give you the high notes from that and a lot of the resources we found. So put us in the late 1970s. Executive producer Michael Uslan, he's a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington in the College of Arts and Sciences. At the time, they had this program where if you wanted to teach a course something you were really passionate about, you could make a pitch to the deans, and if they thought there was academic value in it, they would greenlight it, and you could like teach your passion project, which I think is really neat. That's like a much more formal version of like, I always think of those, uh, what are they called? Continuing learning credits, continued learning, yes. right? Where it's like adults go to a community college to take a class about botany or photography or whatever. But this is like, I'm going to do it at a research tier university, right. and I'm going to teach about whatever topic I'm interested in. So what was Guslan teaching about? It's so good. So he pitched the world's first college accredited course on comic books. 
Okay. Which is awesome. And he presents to the deans and the, you know, everyone hears his pitch. And the dean says, Michael, I appreciate what you're doing, but you can't convince me these funny stories are modern mythology. And Michael's comeback is awesome. So Michael knows that the dean is both religious, but also really liked actually reading Superman for fun. He knew Superman. Okay. And so Michael says, all right, um, well, tell me the origin story of Moses. And he talks all about the story of Moses and where Moses came from. He says, great. Now tell me the origin story of Superman. And the dean makes it halfway through Superman. He's like, oh, okay, I get it. You can teach the course. You're approved. He sees like the modern value of this modern mythological telling that it parallels these ancient stories. And he's like, all right, game on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Uslan has this passion project career, this life mission that he wants people to see that there's a lot more to Batman, to quote him, than pow, zap, and zam. It gets approved. It makes national news. Stan Lee calls him and just so excited. He's like, this is great. Whatever you need from me, let me know. I'll give you all my sketches, background stuff. Happy to help. The vice president of DC Comics in New York, of course, DC owns Batman, for those of you who don't know, Saul Harrison, calls him up, thanks him so much, they're seeing the story everywhere, and they fly him out to New York to meet with all the heads of DC to say, hey, how can we keep elevating Batman in our properties? Tell us what you need from us, what more can we do? And this is like Michael's big moment where he's like, oh my god, this is it, this is it, this is it. And he pitches the dark Batman movie. He's like, this is where Batman began. He's great like this, this creature of the night, this scary foe. I love Adam West, but not the tights. They're like, we love it. This is a great idea, and we'd love to see this happen. So while Uslan's in New York City, he gets a job with United Artists, and he meets Ben Melnicker, who ends up being a, an executive producer with him on Batman. Mm-hmm. Loves the passionate pitch about reinventing the comic books and the movies, darker, more real. And they make the deal with DC to secure an option to the rights to make a motion picture, including animation, but excluding television. So they don't, they're not Batman the Animated Series later on. Right. But they get all the characters and everything in the Batman world. And what's clear here that's really important to get Batman made is just the year before when he's doing all this is 1978 Superman. Richard Donner's Superman comes out. Do you have any recollections of, of that Superman and feelings about Superman, Richard Donner? You know, I I don't remember as a kid liking those movies very much. Whenever they were on, I was very bored by them. I remember a scene at Niagara Falls where a kid, yeah. like, <laughs> right. talk about latchkey kid scenario. This kid is just basically, like, dangling from the edge of a cliff on the other side of the railing. I remember that. I remember Richard Pryor's in one of them. I think oh the my God, third that's one. Right. Yeah. And I think Superman flies around Earth to, like, turn back time or something. Yeah. And then, of course, Christopher Reeve. I mean, you can't not – he just – he had the look. He looked like freaking Superman. He was, like, before Dean Cain, who came along, where you're like, okay, that dude's also Superman. It was freaking Christopher Reeve. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Superman 1 and 2 is also a really good comic book movie. But these are some of the first – these are the first two – movie adaptations of comic books that were for an adult audience or a right. younger child audience and show that there's something here. So there's a broader appeal. It can be more serious. Now, Superman 3 and 4 uh, in the mid to late 80s kind of flopped pretty hard, but Superman 1 and 2 kind of showed everybody. Warner Brothers was like, all right, if we can do this with Superman, what can we do with Batman? This opens right. up their mind. So October 3rd, 1979, Uslan and Melnicker form Bat Film Productions Incorporated. They get the deal signed. They get the funding and they're like, all right, go get this movie made. And Michael Uslan then gets turned down by every single studio in Hollywood. Every pitch flops. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to do the Batman. And unfortunately, I think it sounds like that's because the, the Superman 3, I think, came out in 83, right around there, uh, had already flopped. 
And they're like, yeah. ah, the superhero thing is over. Nobody wants that anymore. Right. So Ben brings in Peter Goober and Neil Bogart and their company, Casablanca. This is like the only other movie production company left that maybe. And these guys love the pitch. Three days later, they sign the deal and they're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Casablanca presents it to Universal and Universal rejects it. They're like, no, did you not see Superman 3? We're not going to do this. It's not going to happen. Yeah, not happening. And the problem with this is it's not just Superman not doing well. It's like the 1960s Batman. Everyone thinks that's Batman and no one wants that. Yeah, it's funny. Like now we only think of dark Batman. But like at that time, it was the exact opposite. It was the campy Batman was everyone's idea of Batman because a lot of people, you know, I think unless you read the comics, you wouldn't have known about the like more serious, darker side of Batman. You just knew the Adam West version. Absolutely. So Warner Brothers does something very intelligent here. Very cool. And they're like, how can we test the waters but not spend as much money on a Hollywood blockbuster? So they get author Frank Miller to pen The Dark Knight Returns in 1986. As a batophile, this is one of my favorite graphic novels ever, but Mm. especially of Batman. It's old Bruce Wayne, it's old Batman, and he comes back kind of out of retirement to try and save a a dystopian future of of Gotham City. And people went nuts. They could Mm -hmm. not keep the comic on the shelves. And so they're like, all right, there's something here. So then they put out, they get author Alan Moore to do The Killing Joke, which is incredibly dark. And that comes out in 1988. Yeah. People also love that. And it's all dark and gritty and like really adult level writing of storytelling. And people are like, we love this Batman. And they're like, all right, I think this Uslan dude is onto something with the dark Batman. Let's Make it happen. These two comics are fantastic, by the way. These graphic novels. I'm going to put up some others from the 80s and this one that I also recommend on our Insta this week, but highly recommend it. Yeah, I read The Killing Joke. What did you think of The Killing Joke? I might be a psychopath. I was like, this could be darker. I'm a lunatic. I'm pretty sure. Everything that's supposed to be really dark. Everything that's supposed to be like really dark and people are like, that's messed up. I'm usually like, meh, it could be more. I'm... (laughs) So what did what did you th- okay so this is around the same time this is another experiment by Warner Brothers yeah what did you think of the survey they put out to readers about what to do with somebody in the Bat family I don't know what you're talking about so they went on to test the waters a little more and they surveyed readers in their Batman line should we kill Robin mm. and overwhelmingly fans were like yes kill Robin and so out comes the graphic novel well a series and then graphic novel eventually Death in the Family. Which is them killing Robin. So the fans were all like so hungry for this. Out of there. Get out of there. Peace out, Boy Scout. Mm hmm. So there's a lot of different iterations that go through the screenplays to try and like get this movie made. I mean, this is really hard, right? You're trying to save this from the comic Adam West, Burr Ward, trying to turn this into something new. So, you know, it was an Art Deco period piece for a while. At one point, it was very clearly a comedy. And they were looking at Bill Murray to play Batman and Eddie Murphy as Robin. I nearly choked on my drink when I read that note. Imagine, listeners, if you will, a Bill Murray Batman with a Eddie Murphy Robin. Like, in their (laughs) prime 80s, like, Murray's still, like kind of goofy Murray. He's not sure. like the, the serious Murray we have Caddyshack now. Murphy. He's Caddyshack Murphy. And then this is like the prime of Eddie Murphy coming up, right? He's, yeah. It's 48 hours. It's uh, the Beverly Hill Cops. This like is all that. Robin Raw. 
<laughs> this is Robin Raw. Yeah, he's he's wearing the like purple and black leather suit. I cannot imagine this to me is like the Nick Cage Superman. I cannot imagine this thing existing in the world. But listen, we're gonna talk about it. People were very down on Keaton to play Batman. So maybe Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? So it's summer of 83 and Superman writer Tom Mankiewicz has nothing to do after Superman 3 came out. <laughs> and they're like, mm, maybe we're not going to do a fourth one. So he submits an origin script uh, about the story with Batman, Robin, Joker, and Penguin. Mm-hmm. But it's still like very lighthearted. It has the sort of the Superman levity. He kind of can't break his mold of the Superman writing in the 60s. And so that's rejected. Three years later, 1986, Steve Englehard writes a second treatment, gets rid of Penguin and Robin, starts to take a little more form. But it's not until we get Sam Ham. Great name, by the way. Sam, Sam Ham. Sam Ham, I, Sam Ham I am. Sam Ham I am. And this is a name you just don't hear around this movie a lot. You hear about the actors a lot. You hear about Tim Burton, but you don't hear Sam Ham a lot. And he deserves a lot more credit. Sam Ham writes the first draft of what does become Batman the movie. He goes back to Bob Kane's vision of Batman, very dark, takes it seriously, really wants to explore the psychology of who Batman is to dress up and do this, beat up goons in the middle of the night and hide in a cave underneath his mansion. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of new territory for a movie at that time of that kind, like to explore the psychology of of a character. Right. Gets rid of the origin story and it makes Batman much more mysterious. Where did he come from? How did he start doing this? From the script that he had been handed, he gets rid of Silver Saint Cloud, who is an old Batman character, and that's replaced with Vicky Vale. And we introduce <laughs> Carl Grissom, who Bob Kane was a big fan of. You were doing a great Carl Grissom voice. I mean, Jack Palance, like, he's one of those guys that wasn't in a ton of stuff in the 80s, but the stuff he was in, you remember. Oh, Bring yeah. me Tango and Cash. <laughs> like, it's just, he's so one of a kind. He's his own man. It's amazing. It's so good. So we're, we're getting into the, the later 80s now. And Tim Burton is among the sort of class of directors who's kind of coming up. They are the future of directing in Hollywood. Yeah. And he did a few things by now. He had done Vincent and Frankenweenie at Disney. I've seen Frankenweenie. Have you ever seen Frankenweenie? I have not. I forget who Spuds McKenzie, what kind of dog Spuds McKenzie was for Budweiser, but it's that kind oh, of dog. Yeah. It's about like a kid's dog dies and he brings it back to life as like Frankenstein. But Bonnie Lee was with Warner Brothers, and she actually kind of saw some future there in Tim Burton. She liked his sort of off-kilter style in his eye. She actually helped him get his first movie, his real feature film done. Do you know who Tim, what Tim Burton's first feature film was? Was it Pee-wee's Big Adventure? It was Pee-wee's Big Adventure! Oh! Ah, yeah. I know you're a, you're a Pee-wee fan. I, that was pretty cool. Tell him Large Marge sent you. <laughs> oh, there's no basement in the Alamo. Oh, it's so good. Oh my God. Uh, Spud McKenzie was a bull terrier. Bull terrier. Thank How you. About that? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Very thank you. unique face. That That'll long, be the fact kinda, of the show right there. Yeah, there it is. So Burton had actually been working on the Batman script with Sam Hamm, kind of under wraps, before his next huge temple 80s movie comes out in 1988, Beetlejuice. It did okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all kind of sitting on their hands before going down the road with Batman being like, let's see if Beetlejuice does well. Like, does this Burton guy got the chops? Can he do this? And of course, Beetlejuice did what Beetlejuice did. Be amazing. Be dark and crazy and amazing and wonderful. Oh. Yeah. So Bertman is greenlit on doing this. And uh, he was really excited. He's also a graphic artist. He really liked Batman. He felt really personally 
connected to Batman, that they're like these two sides of life and one is really understood and one's more performative being out there. He just, he really related to the Batman character a lot. Mm -hmm. And so from the very start, Tim Burton wanted to build some risk into the movie. He said, quote, I'm going to take this to another place, give you a lot of variety, something you've never seen. And the producers that we've already talked about thought that that was essential. The world of Batman, the world of Gotham, the world of Joker is all very risky and on edge. and You never know what to expect and what's coming. And Burton wanted to try something completely new. And that crazy experiment is like what made everyone like bring their all to their job every single day made it scary, but also exciting, kind of courageous. It was He really like drove, I think, the feeling a lot on the set. So another writer, Warren Skarin, came in for the third act after Sam wrote the first two acts of Batman, laid out really well with the psychology of the characters. He was a super fan. He came in, you could ask him any question about the Batman universe in these like writing rooms, and he would tell you exactly, oh, well, in Detective Comic, you know, 49, when the Penguin does this, like, he knew the world really well. Mm. The executive producer, the IU professor we talked about, Michael Uslan, was actually really excited they got Robin out of the film. Again, professor of comic books, he noted that the first detective comic with Batman was in May 1939, Detective Number 7, where Batman was solo. Robin doesn't show up until Detective Number 38. So they were going for an authentic look, and we've got Jeanette Kahn running DC in those days, but now we need to talk about the cast. And the obvious choice, Chris, of course, for Batman is Michael Keaton. That's right. <laughs> Only person for consideration. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the Keaton concern that came up when, when he was named Batman? Yeah, so I actually remember this. And I was like, I'm pretty sure this was a thing. And then when we did our research, I was like, oh, it was certainly a thing. Maybe a bigger thing than I realized. Yeah. Apparently, fans wrote over like 50,000 letters to Warner Brothers protesting Keaton. He's Mr. Mom. He's Beetlejuice. Like, he's, he's Beetlejuice. a silly guy. He can't do this. He's going to, like, ruin the movie. So, like, it was very controversial, so much so that apparently they really had to rush out a trailer to get it into the theaters. Yeah. And I guess there was, like, no real dialogue. It was just basically, like, a bunch of scenes. It's such a weird trailer. We're going to get back to it. Yeah. They could see Keaton in the outfit. They could see the tone and the look and the style and understand, like, no, everyone, this is going to work out. And apparently that did pay off. But, yeah, not a welcome announcement for sure. Uh, yeah. And also not the only person in consideration. It wasn't just him and a... Old Billy Murray. So great. Who else? Who else did they consider for the role? Mel Gibson. Mm -hmm. But I think he was doing Lethal Weapon two, if I remember. Yeah, correctly. coming out that same year. Yeah. Kevin Costner. If you build the Batcave, they will come. Charlie Sheen. Yeah, Charlie Sheen. That would have been interesting. Magnum PI himself, Timothy Selleck. You got right, Tom. and I think it's actually. So I think the deal was that Batman would be played by Tom Selleck's mustache, and Tom would be Robin. I yes. think he was going to be the sidekick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You saw that too. Yeah. Facts. Yeah, yeah. That was good. That was good. Indiana Jones Ford himself. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Mr. Harrison. Who also had a big year that year. Yeah. Dennis Quaid, 007, Pierce Brosnan. And then at that yeah. time, I, a, an unknown Willem Dafoe. Oh, I didn't see that. That's yeah. interesting. And a lot of people thought Dafoe was up for the Joker. They thought he was up in that role. To this day, there's a lot of fan cries to have him play the Joker because he would crush a Joker role. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this was on the cover of like the Wall Street Journal. There were like headlines like, Mr. Mom is Batman. But like people who made the decision to bring him in never wavered. Uh, Tim Burton quoted saying like, it was his eyes that got him the job. He's got this crazy look. 
but he doesn't look like a superhero. He looks like a guy that needs to dress like a bat for effect. <laughs> well, and I saw that the producer, John Peters, he's like, you know, Keaton had the kind of like edgy tormented quality yeah. uh, because he had done a dramatic performance in Clean and Sober. And he said, right. seeing that and pairing it with Burton, who had directed Keaton and Beetlejuice, was like, he can pull it off. So yeah, like everyone involved was like, we're going to stand by our choice, even though it's not popular. Everyone's loving it. And I just, just here in the section talking about Keaton, I just want to throw there, I didn't know this. He improv he came up with the idea for when Bruce Wayne is Batman to talk in the darker, gravelly voice to try and hide his, who he really is, his true identity. That was kind of fun. He was basically like, everyone's going to know Bruce Wayne is Batman. Like, it's so obvious. Like, right. I, for him, like, he needed the, the reality of that world. He needed that verisimilitude, I suppose is the right word. <laughs> I think I used that correctly. Nicely done. Yeah. Like, he wanted that. And so part of it was like, for me to do this performance, I have to feel like the people in the world would be fooled or wouldn't, you know, catch on as to who it was. So, yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, Christian Bale was like, hold my batarang. And my tongue, so you can't understand me. Even more ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. This, what we're about to get into right here, is one of my favorite things I've learned about Batman the movie in prepping for this episode. Oh. Because Michael Keaton is the title character, but he is not first billed in the movie in the credits. Sure isn't. We've got a prima donna coming that out. goes to the one and only Jack Nicholson, oh, who is Jackie. cast as the Joker. Oh, Jackie. And a million people wanted to play the Joker. This was, I, I actually usually have good research on this and I don't have the list. Do you have some other Joker considerations? Oh, I sure do. You Thank can God. probably guess. Do you have any guesses? Um, There's going to be some names that you should know or could know. A three-year-old Jim Carrey. Not, <laughs> not Jim Carrey. A little too well, young. I mean, probably Robin Williams again. Yes. Robin Williams apparently fought hard for this role. Did not get it. Actually, I have a, a fun Robin Williams callback, but yes. I think we're all biased because now we've seen what Jack Nicholson did with the role and we've yeah. seen what um, Heath Ledger did with the role. So it's hard to like think of someone else in the role. So who who else was there? I'm surprised you didn't come up with this one. Tim Curry. <gasps> oh, Tim would have been delightful in that role. John Lithgow. Oh, that's interesting. It's hard to think. I was just thinking of Cliffhanger. And so it's hard to see he, oh. coming from Cliffhanger villain. <laughs> uh, that's interesting, though. Uh, Ray Liotta. <laughs> what? Yeah. Ray Liotta is Joker? Yeah, I could kind of see it. James Woods. Oh, that's interesting. I bet James could have pulled it off. So John Glover, who was sort of the bad guy, I'm going to do air quotes, in Gremlins 2. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got the jawline for it. Yeah. Brad Dourif, who plays Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, Wormtongue. Yeah. yeah. He's a bad sniveling, dude. sniveling little creepy guy. Yeah. He looks like a Nicholson cousin. I could kind of see it. And then David Bowie. Stop it. You know what? It was the cod piece. I don't piece. care. It was the cod piece. That's what did e it. I don't even care if he would do well or not. I want that cut. I want the David Bowie Joker cut. 100%. Uh, so yeah. those are all great choices. Yeah. But Tim Burton says Jack Nicholson was the number one pick for a decade. The minute they thought they were going to do this movie, Hold he said, on. we need Nicholson as Joker. Did he say, Jackie, you are my number one guy. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. And Jack Nicholson said, 
Here's my list of demands. Did right. he not? How they got him is way more insane. It's so, so, so good. I love these stories. So the studio's like, how are we going to get Jack Nicholson? He's a big deal actor. He's just coming off the last detail. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like, and we've got Keaton, who's like Beetlejuice, Mr. Mom. Like, what are we going to do? So the studio announces that they've picked Robin Williams to play Joker. Mm-hmm. And Jack Nicholson feels the screws turning. And Robin Williams had actually accepted the role. But after the Warner Brothers found out that they had Nicholson on the hook and they were pulling the fish in, they let Robin out of his contract. Yeah. It really pissed off Robin Williams. He totally uh, yeah. saw that he was used as bait. Yeah. And he was actually later offered to play Riddler in Batman Forever. And he was like, uh, no. Yeah, I'm he good. refused to be in any Warner Brothers movie until the studio officially apologized for, like, catfishing with him for Jack Nicholson. I don't blame him. No. To know that you were just being used as a bargaining chip, I'd be a little ticked off. I know that's Hollywood, but still. Like, so you don't, cool. You don't have to, like, then play to their game and be like, oh, yeah, I'll come back since you're going to throw me the Riddler role. Uh-uh. Nope. Right. So, Jack Nicholson loves the horseback ride. He tells Warner Brothers, eh, send this young director out, Burton, and I, I want to talk to him. Burton had never been on a horse, terrified of horseback riding. And him and Jack Nicholson go horseback riding together, and Burton's terrified the whole time. But somehow, like, over this horseback ride, they had a deal. Jack was going to be in the movie. And they say, like, the minute they announced that Jack Nicholson was going to play the Joker, it changed the vibe internationally. And there was no more this worry of what's the silly thing with Keaton and this young director. They're like, oh, this is no longer a comic movie. This is a film. Jack Nicholson mm -hmm. is going to be in it. Uh, the producers likened it to like when they got Marlon Brando to be in the Superman movie. They're like, whoa, Brando is in Superman. This changed everything. And now it can be respected by audiences. People are listening. And of course, Nicholson, being the big character he is, really elevated Joker in the script. He had some notes on how featured Joker was going to be in the movie. And he pretty much got most of everything he wanted. He also had like a bunch of weird demands. We don't have to get into a lot of them, but he he got some like prima donna treatments, like it clauses this is part in of his the great contract. Story. I love this part of the story. Can we go through them? I wrote there. Yeah. Yes. Highlights. We don't need to, we don't need to pull out his contract and go. I don't have his contract. No, but this, is, this has been cited as one of the most lucrative actor payouts in Hollywood history for what he negotiated here. So, Set number of hours off every day. He got off for all Lakers home games. They're shooting in, in England. He gets flown home for Lakers games because they're in the, the tournament. He gets top billing in the movie like we mentioned. He gets his best buddy to be in the movie as Bob the Goon. Joker's yeah. main henchman. Sixth biggest part in the movie. It's crazy. That was just like a random guy that Nicholson's like, yeah, my friend's going to be in the movie and have a main part. Yeah. People love That's Bob awesome. though. If you ever get called up for a movie, like just please remember me and our work on 80s High. Um, just bring me along as your Bob the Goon. Ben the I'll Goon. I'll think about it. I'll think about it. But probably the thing that really makes him legendary in this is he said, you know what? Instead of $10 million, I'll take $6 million to do the movie, but I get a percentage of the film's earnings. And those earnings include merchandise. So nobody knows the exact number, but the estimate is somewhere around a $90 million payout. Yeah, I think he kind of saw... You know what? I'm going to forgo a little bit of money, take a minor risk, because I think yeah. this movie is going to pay off. And yeah, sure did. And then Nicholson, of course, later says, like, this is one of his favorite roles he ever played. He loved the Joker because the sense of humor, quote, is completely tasteless. 
And he just like to kind of do whatever. Like Joker is a character who does whatever he wants in the moment. Very unpredictable. And so Nicholson just had a blast. So let's get to our heroic news reporter. Do you get a little background on the, the Kim Basinger versus Sean Young issue with the casting? Yeah, so my understanding is like Basinger was initially wanted for the role, but then she couldn't do it because I think she was doing something else. And then Sean Young, who I believe is in Blade Runner. She plays Rachel, the replicant. Okay. uh, Was cast. And she was set to do this movie. And then speaking of horseback riding, she's in an accident. Yeah. Breaks her collarbone. Yeah. So they're like, we need to find someone really fast. And I guess something had happened where Kim was available and interested in still being in the role. So they bring her on and she becomes our Vicky Vale. The, The producers are like, who's available tomorrow? to fly to London for four months and can do this part. And they're like, it's basically back to Kim Basinger, who originally wouldn't even meet with producer John Peters unless he was going to make an offer, unless they knew beforehand. That's, That's what I, it was. Yeah, so yeah, basically yeah. it's like, we'll meet if you make an offer. And they were like, okay, we're going to pass. But then, yeah, came back to it. So they're like, oh, Now okay. they did throw it out to Michelle Pfeiffer, who at the time was dating Michael Keaton. Oh, that's right. But Keaton was against it, saying it'd be a little bit awkward. Yeah. So it's funny, as we all know, well, as many people know, Michelle Pfeiffer comes back in Batman Returns as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. But what's wild about this is this is after she and Keaton stop dating. Well, now there's no conflict of interest. They're not yes, together anymore. But in the movie, there is so much sexual tension between the two. Like Catwoman like licks Batman's face at one point. And like to know that they had just broken up, that's complicated. I'm, I'm going to say something here just real quick. We're not oh, talking boy. about the sequel. That is the horniest Batman movie ever. Everyone in that movie is thirsty. The Penguin is thirsty. Oh, yeah. The Catwoman's thirsty. Batman, everyone's thirsty. I think Alfred is thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) It is such a randy movie. I was like, oh, my God. But it's so fun. I love that movie so much. Goodness, I'm sure we'll talk about it in contemporary culture. Another Pee-wee reference. Paul Rubens plays Penguin's dad in that movie in the beginning. You're right. Oh my yeah. gosh, you're so right. Pretty ah! wild, right? Oh, wow. My son's horrific. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> he looks like a penguin. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the cast is so great. We talked about Billy D. Williams comes in to play Harvey Dent. For those of you who don't know the Batman world, goes on to become Two-Face, another villain. But he was Lando Calrissian in Empire Strikes Back in 1980. So apparently he was promised the role yeah. in the third movie. And by the time it came around, they're like, yeah, no, we're going to cast Tommy Lee Jones, which obviously disappointed Williams. But also like part of the reason Burton cast Billy D is like he wanted to sort of go against type and not have a, a white character in that yeah. role. That's good. And so he cast Billy D as sort of like, hey, we're going to have him in the first movie as Harvey, and then we're going to kind of pay it off in the third movie. But by that point, Burton's not involved anymore. It's Schumacher. And apparently Schumacher was not interested in keeping that deal. So yeah, right? There's a lot of weird recasting in this series I'm sure we'll get to. But anyway. So we've got everybody. The movie shoot is underway. Sorry, I have one more little nugget I found. Please. You would mention that Robin was written out. I saw that Robin was written out late in the game. That apparently the only reason he was written out is because of the Writers Guild strike. Uh, Very prescient, uh, as we're currently experiencing a Writers Guild strike. But there was a strike in 88, and Ham wasn't available, and a bunch of like writers came in to rewrite a bunch of stuff. So Ham's original vision for the movie is a lot of things are changed, and it's not by him. And he's like, 
I had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with that. And then Burton changed a few things. But apparently Robin was supposed to be in the like um, the Graysons, the Flying Graysons. Is that what they're called? Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're supposed to be performing in that parade and like the parents are going to be killed. And so we kind of see Dick Grayson slash future Robin a little bit. And apparently Kiefer Sutherland said that he was considered for the role but turned it down. That's fascinating. Yeah, so apparently Robin, up until fairly late in the game, would have been in the movie, could have been Kiefer. Wow. There's even a storyboard there of a chase with Robin and Batman against Joker through the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right, Sam Hamm wanted it to be very clear. One of the biggest parts of the movie, and we'll jump back to it, but Alfred lets Vicky Vale into the Batcave without Batman's permission and reveals Bruce Wayne's identity. Yeah. And everyone was like, what the crap is that? She hasn't earned the trust of the family. Just because, you know, Alfred's trying to marry Bruce Wayne off the whole movie. He wants him to get married, sure settle down. Is. And Sam Hamm was like, I was on the picket line. I was doing the protest. I wasn't there. And I would have never let Vicky Vale into the Batcave. Yeah, they even tried to retcon it in the second movie where, like, Bruce Wayne gives him a little bit of guff for it. And, like, a yeah. little comment toward the end of the movie. So, movie's underway. Most expensive movie of all all time so everyone involved their careers are riding on it the production budget started at 30 million but ballooned to 48 million because of the effects and the sets and the set let's talk about this they go to pinewood studios in england famous famous soundstage it's the biggest set built at the time 18 sound stages made mm. up of it warner brothers wow. couldn't fit it all and that's one of the things again again we talk about this on 80s high a lot but that makes this movie so real is so much is actually built like the yeah. buildings are built the vehicles are made a little before even today you'd see a lot of this done with models or cg like star wars was so many models but right all of this is like two scale built so it's huge I was kind of interested by the architecture design. Did you read about this? No, but I love the architecture in this movie. Tell me. It's Tell amazing. Me so production designer Anton Furst and the art department, they said they deliberately mixed clashing architectural styles to make Gotham City, quote, the ugliest and bleakest metropolis imaginable. That's awesome. He said, we imagine what New York City might have become without a planning commission. <laughs> <laughs> A city run by crime with a riot of architectural styles, an essay in ugliness, as if hell erupted through the pavement and kept on going. I thought that was such a great quote. Dude, first. Yeah, I was like, oh, what style is this? And I couldn't quite put a finger on it. I was like, is it Art Deco? Is it Gothic? Is it? Well, now I realize it's everything. It's just this whole, this mishmash. And it somehow works oppressive, but grandiose. And it's, it's very unique and cool. And I think, you know, it, it makes... Gotham City, a character along with all of these actors. A thousand percent. And so these these two right-hand men to Burton during the shoot, like you mentioned, first production design, and they get it. They're like, they see each other, they're in each other's brains. First is very dark, he's very creative, he gets it. The other one, Roger Pratt, is the DP, the director of photography, he struggled. He has a, he has a great history in Hollywood on a lot of films. But Burton's vision, as we all know, is extremely different. It is anything but traditional. And Pratt said, you know, he respected Burton, but really struggled to try and, like, capture what he was trying to do. Sure. It's a hard shoot overall. It's six days a week, always at night. They're shooting in the winter. Uh, Burton said he'd never do it again because you never have time to get ready for the next day. He said he felt like a fighter in the middle of a fight with no time to breathe. He said he didn't see daylight for three months. Oof. So it was really rough shoot, but everyone was very collaborative the whole way across. Like Burton was not a dictator 
on set. He was open to conversation. One of the best is they're getting close, and it's been written, but trying to figure out the set of how we're going to end this movie. And Tim Burton and Jack Nicholson go to see Phantom of the Opera one night, just for, like, funsies. And near the end of the movie, of course, the Phantom is carrying Christine up these long, old, gothic steps in his in the lair underneath the opera house. And they're like, whoa, this is dramatic. This is great. And that's how we get Batman and Jack Nicholson and Vicki Vale going up the church. I thought that was mm. pretty cool. I love the Phantom of the Opera. Of course, we get the legendary logo design, the first Batman logo. Everyone was really excited when that showed up on set one day because everyone was like, what is that? What is the, that a picture of? And it's not until you really study it that like the Batman logo really comes out. And they were all just floored by that. So excited. The last little piece of people I want to talk about is Danny Elfman. Yes. What a score. Oh what my God. A freaking score. So he does the score. He's the composer. And there was actually a lot of skepticism around him. He was nervous about himself being able to figure out the tone of this movie. Again, it's hard. What is this movie? We know Adam West and Burt Ward. Silly, what is this film? Well, and this is his first like big motion picture that he's going to score. That's a lot of pressure, I imagine, for a, a young up-and-comer <laughs> from his Oingo Boingo days, which I did not realize. I was <laughs> like, he amazing. was an Oingo Boingo? Right? How great what? is that? <laughs> So he's got this day where he's got to go ahead and present the music to producer John Peters. And he's like, this is it. This is where I get fired. This is over. And he's like tinking on the piano. He's playing a couple things and John's not really reacting. And Burton says, Danny, play the march. And Danny Elfman plays the march, which is the all everything. And, and John Peters jumps out of his chair, starts dancing around the room. He's feeling he loves it. The score is set. Mm. But just a little throwaway, this might could be in contemporary culture, but I'll say it now. Elfman doesn't like the music at the end of the day. Whatever the mu- the audio engineers did with his score to mix it for the movie, he's really not a fan. Hmm. He likes the original music he did on the piano, but actually what shows up in the movie he's not a big fan of. So they announced the movie's going to come out in June of 1989. And this year is stacked for cinema. Oh my god. In April, we've got Field of Dreams, Kickboxer, and Say Anything. In May, we've got Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Roadhouse. Mm -hmm. June's got Ghostbusters 2, Karate Kid Part 3, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Do the Right Thing, Star Trek V, and Dead Poets Society. Mm. And lastly, the month after, in July, we're talking about big summer openings, Weekend at Bernie's, Jason Takes Manhattan, Turner and Hooch, Lethal Weapon 2, License to Kill, and UHF, which we've talked about on this show. (laughs) It's a big summer. Yeah. But just so happens, it's Batman's 50th anniversary, and it makes $40 million the opening weekend. Mm. That's over $97 million in today's money. It actually ends its run worldwide making $400 million. Wow. Which puts it into league with like the Avengers, Titanic, the Avatar movies, Force Awakens, Jurassic World. It's the fifth most successful movie in history at that Mm. time. Man. And worldwide, it only comes second to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But Warner Brothers is like, we want more money. So November 15th, just in time for Thanksgiving, Christmas, they release Batman on VHS. That iconic black box with the gold Batman logo in the top third. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they rake in another $150 million. Give thanks Mm. for Thanksgiving. The last little part here in history class I want to talk about is what everyone likes to refer to as Batmania. Mm. Just how our collective psychosis went nuts that summer all around Batman. And if you're playing bingo at home, this might be a cover-all. Get ready. 
you can't talk about 80s high without coming back to Mr. Ronnie Reagan. Of course, we talk a lot about Ronald Reagan's deregulation and the pluses, but mostly negatives, that had on society and the world. And one of these was his drive to remove laws that existed to prevent the formation of monopolies, particularly in Hollywood and in media. Mm -hmm. But the removal of these laws allowed Warner Brothers to merge with Time, Inc., which actually happened in 1990, but they announced it in March of 1989. And so as those two companies came together, they at that time were the largest exporter of American media and entertainment and were suddenly flush with cash. Mm -hmm. And they poured all that cash into an unprecedented marketing campaign to promote Batman the movie. It was everywhere. And it's Warner Brothers, so they also own a massive supply chain of, they own comics, they've got television, they've got toys, they can do it all. Spaceballs the t-shirt, Spaceballs <laughs> the lunchbox, Spaceballs the flamethrower. Yep. Mm -hmm. So they like, if anyone rings them up, hey, we want to license Batman, it seems like they don't say no to anyone. There's actually a good like uh, bit of like Michael Keaton on um, David Letterman, and David Letterman's joking with them of like, yeah, there's like Batman medical supplies, Batman the Iron Lung, like it's all this ridiculousness. But it is, there's more than 300 officially licensed products at the time. If you can think of it, they had it. Yeah, that's so crazy to think of. It was everywhere. It's just crazy. And to speak of like the whole Monopoly situation, I think the reason Prince is involved is because doesn't Warner Brothers like own the company that has the recording contract with Prince? Precisely. And so they're basically like, hey, we're going to promote one of our artists. And I didn't, I forgot this. He creates a whole album. It's not just like a couple songs for the movie. He did a nine track album. And they didn't even hire him to do that. They hired him to do two songs. And yeah. he does the nine track album in three weeks. Oh, I had planned crazy. to do this in chemistry, but you brought it up. Do you want to go ahead and do the Prince thing? And then we'll go back to Batmania. I, I consider it part of Batmania. Maybe yeah. it isn't, but um, I no, mean, we great. can talk more about it in chemistry. I just thought it was like, it, to reactions? me, it was part of like the whole monopoly media arm that they wield for this movie oh yeah and there's there's a lot of pressure with prince coming on i mean prince is very expensive he's very particular he had just done uh 1986 with purple rain mm -hmm. but jack nicholson is also a huge fan of prince mm. he really wants prince on it and jack nicholson is sort of like like you said the prima donna on this movie and old jackie boy gets what jackie wants and so, like, on one hand, this is really good, because Prince's audience is perceptively quite different than a traditional comic book audience. So you're going to bring a lot more people into, like, the Batman universe. But Tim Burton hates this. He feels like Prince is not the sound of Batman. It is not dark. It is not heavy. But Prince is so enthusiastic. Warner Brothers is so pumped. Nicholson keeps bringing it up on set about Prince that he just felt super pressured and stuck, like he had no option. And so... It wasn't until an interview like three years later, but Burton said, like, I really hated this, that Prince came on. I was really not a fan. Right. But the album sold over two million copies. It did not do badly. So along with Prince, but just there are decades of prepackaged origins and gadgets and villains from the comic books since the 30s. So there's so much that they can use in licensing and making stuff because they don't Actually, when The Dark Knight Returns comes out, over 70% of comic book buyers are over the age of 21. So the mm. demographics have shifted up of people who love that. Right. The producers think it's the best marketed movie in the history of film. Like so much money on a single property in such a tight 
focused time. Did you watch the trailer? You talked about how and why they issued the trailer. What did you think of this trailer? So I watched somebody talking about the trailer. So like I didn't see it in its entirety and the person was speaking. So if there's any audio in it, I missed that. But to my understanding, there's no dialogue. I think it's just music and visuals, right? Like scenes from the movie. Mostly. And the music's only at the beginning and the end. You don't understand the plot. They show the Batwing right away. They show the Batmobile right away, which in the actual movie, you don't see the Batmobile until the second half of the movie. And you don't see the Batwing until like the last 15 minutes. Yeah. So they reveal all the major moments. They show Jack Nicholson as Joker. Like, it's just a very different time of trailers because they really showed all the reveals that were going to happen. They did. But also remember, they're trying to... This was a desperate attempt to make sure people understood they got the tone right and they wanted to get people amped up because there was just so much negativity about... Keaton and what are you trying to do here? So like they really, I think had to, it was sort of like a, see, see, we we know what we're doing. You're in good hands. And it paid off. I mean, like, yeah, it wouldn't be a trailer that we would put out today, but it worked. Oh yeah. I mean, people were so nuts. They were breaking the glass at bus stops to get the poster out of the advertisement to take home. It was also like people were going to a movie just to see the trailer and then leaving. Like they didn't even yeah, want to see the movie right, it was right. for. There's like, uh, which I think happened with Phantom Menace. Like people just wanted to go right. and see the trailer. Could not care less about the movie. They were paying like 25 bucks for like bootleg VHS copies of the trailer. That's how nuts That's people wild. were at this time. Wow. So this is what we have read and studied. But we asked the class of 80s high, what do you remember about Batmania? And we do have some memories. Classmate Greg says, I remember the original TV show reruns, Pow Zing, and I absolutely loved the original Batman. Theme song, down to the ending credits, what a great ride. Also an awesome roller coaster at Six Flags Great America, so smooth. Dr. Nick Face, love these names, says, definitely the Batman cups. Now, who, what is this, Pizza Hut? Who did the cups? Well, I think it's a little confusing because someone else mentioned this, that there's, I think it's McDonald's, did like cups that had texture to them like the faces stuck out a little bit but it was later for batman forever it wasn't for the original batman they might have done it for the original batman but i remember the batman forever fast food cups were very very popular to get your hands on okay that was listener margo who said hey mcdonald's had the batman forever mugs that were awesome okay all right so definitely always things to drink out of with a logo on it a hit Uh, What else do we have? Uh, Joker Jim says, I just remember waiting so long for the first movie to come out. I was young, but I got to go to this movie with a few friends, and I was actually on the local news when I finished seeing the movie. The reporter asked me what I thought about the movie, and my response was, quote, it was great. That was my two seconds of local fame. I love it. That's awesome. What a great memory. Jim, that's so cool. Can you imagine, like, it's like that trope where somebody is, like, being interviewed, and they say all of these great, eloquent things, and then, like, it finally airs, it was great, and then they just cut away from you, and you're like, that's it. I said so many things. (laughs) (sighs) And then, listener, okay, so I don't know if this is amygdala or in true fashion of, like, a villain or superhero, it's Amy G. Dalla, but it's like Ooh. amygdala, like Edward Nigma, Enigma, right? Let's go with Amy G. Dalla. That's I think it's I Amy like G. Dalla. Amy says, I saw this at least five times in the theater the summer it came out, and of course, had the obligatory shirt every teenager had at the time, such an iconic film with great swag. I mean, the black logo with the kind of goldish yellow, Ooh. simple, very striking 
the style was really great for like the posters and like you said, the, the cover art for the VHS. It's just the logo and it kind of stands on its own. Absolutely. So it's Wednesday before the Friday premiere of the movie and people are camped outside theaters. And this really is like one of the first times you had a mega release where like so many screens across the country are going to show this movie. Mega media push. The night of the premiere, this is so sweet. Bob Kane, again, the inventor of Batman and his wife, are riding in a limo up to the theater. And Bob said, it looks like New Year's Eve on Times Square out here. And his wife is recalling in the documentary that Bob is just crying in the limo, that he's never Mm. seen anything like this. And then he goes on to tell his wife, quote, why would so many people turn up for something that I created? And like, he was just so humbled that people were so stoked about this Batman that was going on. And it said it just meant the world to him. It was very, very cool. That's amazing. I love that. Kim Basinger recalls like she would go to hospitals, children's hospitals as Vicki Vale to like visit kids who are in intensive care or whatever. And they would say, where's Batman? And she would say, oh, he's parked out in the parking lot. He dropped me off. here. He just needs to be ready to go just in case he's needed, in case he sees the bat symbol. You had the best line, Kim. He's at home. Oh, it is tight. It is t- Come on, Kim. <laughs> you had one job. <laughs> oh, oh, that's man. so good. So let's go back to the director. So Burton is interviewed shortly after Batman comes out. And he says, you know what? I liked parts of it, but the whole movie is mainly boring to me. It's okay, but it was more of a cultural phenomenon than a great movie. Tim Burton wet blanketing his own movie that hundreds of millions, one might even go out to say, beloved by. Creatives are their worst critics. Yeah. I mean, look at Elfman. Didn't like the score. Granted, I think he thought people tinkered with it. But still, like, yeah, I'm not surprised by it. And, you know, this is not a perfect movie. I don't completely disagree with what Burton says. Truly, I don't. I understand what you say. Now, it says like later on he softened and he becomes more favorable about it. But again, it was a really stressful production. It's really hard on him. He had a lot of yeah. pressure from the studio, a lot of pressure from old Jackie Boy in his ear. Hey, get my guy Bob the Goon on there. Hey, get my boy Prince on the soundtrack. Like, there's a lot going on. But the movie's a massive hit. And the only way we're going to talk about what a massive hit it was is to go to, I would say, more of a technology laboratory for this one. We need to go to somewhere where there's a lot of computers and screens, our own sort of bat cave for chemistry Mm. to really analyze and break down Batman. I'm going to be my normal self. I'm going to slide down this pole. And when I get to the bottom, I will be dressed as Batman. Ooh, I like it. I'm going to wear a purple suit with tails. And I'm going to have my goon with a big boom box play some prints as I dance down the hallway to chemistry class. That's amazing. Chris, what do you remember about Batman... The movie. When did you when did you see it? When did you encounter? What was it all about? I mean, I remember the hype so much. I would have been I was trying to clock this. I think it was like in fifth grade. Okay. So you're going to the summer, finishing up fifth grade. I just remember everyone was talking about this. It was such a big deal. I can picture myself where I was living. I was outside playing with my neighbors, and we were just like, Oh my gosh, this Batman movie. Oh, this is amazing. Like like we were just it was like the chatter everywhere. So I remember that. I definitely remember I had trading cards. Oh, of course. I've talked did. about that before. I remembered those. I thought the Batmobile looked so freaking cool. Oh, it was so, cool. so sweet. Uh, I remember Keaton being an odd choice and people being like, 
That's weird. And yeah. as a kid who had, I'm sure by that point, seen Beetlejuice and also, like, I remember Mr. Mom. He was in a movie called Gung Ho. Like, I remember him in those movies. Again, he's a comedian. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember this being, to me, this was the very first summer superhero blockbuster. I know there were the Supermans that came before it. Yeah. Like I said, I don't think I was the right audience for them. I found those movies to be boring whenever they were on. But I remember this being like the first one. Maybe it's just because of Batmania and what hype was created by Warner Brothers. Maybe that's what it was. But to me, this was the first superhero blockbuster movie, uh, which was the foundation for everything that has followed. X-Men all the way up until, you know, the current MCU, DCU that we're experiencing Weekly, daily. <laughs> oh my God, so many. <laughs> Whateverly it is these days. So that's like some of the, the things I really remember about this. Again, this is like your third favorite. I think if you were to rank your three favorites, this is number three of the three. It was two weeks what? ago. We're going to get some more of that in math class. Well, okay. Well, that's a, a juicy tidbit. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Holy smokes. So where was we little Benjamin at this time? 89, you were like, what, four? How I was four. Yes. Okay. So my parents <laughs> Wait, you, did not, you really were four? <laughs> they did not allow me. No, I was. I guess I was technically five. I was going on okay. five. Okay, all right. And they, my, I was not allowed to see this movie for a good reason. A little young. But I was, I was immediately exposed to the toys. So I remember I did have the Batcave. Okay. Which uh, I still have and will post on Instagram this week. It is in horrifically rough shape. I don't know what a monster I was as a little kid, but like it's barely holding on. We've already established that your toys um, have seen better days. They, they, they got a lot of use out of them. As opposed to classmate Aaron, who has these like pristine, beautiful oh collections. If you God. haven't seen his very extensive He-Man collection on our yes. Instagram, you should go check those out. But yeah, that guy has like curated his toys very nicely with all the parts he had like all the little accessories and pieces and attachments blew my mind his stuff was in such incredible quality yeah it's great i also had and i still cherish to this day i still have it it's still in the house a beautiful what i thought was a matchbox diecast car of the batmobile but turns out to be made by ertl i had the exact same one do you really it looks like a matchbox it's roughly the same size maybe a little bit bigger right i had the same one because i looked this up i was like i had a little hot wheels and i saw ertl i was like okay turns out ertl mostly makes diecast farm equipment toys Uh, but i guess they had a license (laughs) in the 80s they made this and um kit oh interesting knight rider okay so I i was shocked by that Wow. So yeah, it was toys early on. And then uh, I do remember actually watching a lot of the Adam West Batman TV show at my grandparents' house. That was For sure. on and safe and, and that was good. And so it was confusing to me to like go from that Adam West TV show, but playing with the Batman movie toys. Right. And then I finally was allowed to see the movie a, few, a couple of years later. And then, then it all kind of came together. Do you remember what action figures you had? Because I had Batman with a retractable like hook in his belt. Yeah. So like you could use that for him to like battering around. I had that. I had the, this was a later one, but I had the Joker where he had like a backpack helicopter. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And like the giant long barreled revolver. Yes. It came with that. Yes. I had that Joker. And then I had a Bruce Wayne where you could put the Batman suit on him. Oh my God. 
It was Bruce Wayne in what almost looks like a, gosh, what would you call it? It's almost like a Star Trek jumpsuit. It's like this whole black outfit with like a red kind of accent color on it. But you could snap on the Batman outfit. So you could actually have him transform from Bruce into Batman. Well, that's I had cool. that one too. It's pretty cool. I think my friend Nathan had the gold version of Batman. I can picture that one. I know exactly yeah. the figure you're talking about. And then I think these came out after as like a more extended DC universe, but they re-released a bunch of uh, action figures and I had the Riddler and the Penguin. Oh, nice. Again, not from like the later movies. They were more styled, I would say, after the 60s and probably like comic book mix. But I had both of them because I remember playing with all of those when we did our superhero toy mashups. Oh, so good. I actually yeah. did not have a broad Batman collection. I think I had just the ones I mentioned. I might have had, I had a Batman and it might be the one with the little retractable little grapple okay. that goes out. Yeah. But actually the toy I really remember, is, this is jumping ahead in time, but I had one of the little penguins from Batman Returns with the rocket oh. strapped to its back. Okay. Which is just a hilarious concept. It's a penguin army with fireworks strapped on their back. That was a very interesting choice. I love that choice. It's so insane. <laughs> there were a lot of interesting choices in that movie, but oh my goodness. So did you recently, for our episode, have you, have you recently rewatched the movie? Yeah, I watched it probably two days ago. Prior to that, I had not seen this movie in a very long time. I couldn't tell you how long. It's been yeah. years. So it was really nice. But the cool thing is, is Max... <laughs> Still getting used to calling it Max. Um, so they silly. have like everything Batman. Oh, everything. Nice. Oh, cool. Any incarnation, they have it on there. So I was like, well, this is a one-stop shop, which is yeah. great. So if you have Max and you're kind of curious to revisit literally anything, the killing joke is on there, all the animated stuff, all the way up to the patents in Batman, it's all there. Oh, that's good. Good, 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 good. Yeah. I mean, the movie starts with this beautiful orchestra, the violins, the brass. Immediately, you're like, this is not like a comic book movie I've ever seen before. It's the march that got Elfman, Mm -hmm. the the final green light. And you're driving around this dark, mysterious thing. And it finally backs out that it's the bat symbol. I just love how this movie starts. It builds so much anticipation. It does. You're seeing something you don't quite understand. It's almost like this movie is something new. So we're going to like throw you into a state of... Not confusion, but curiosity. Yeah, curiosity is a great way to put it. It actually reminds me of an old uh, HBO intro where they did a thing where you were like inside the HBO going around it and it kind of comes out of the HBO and you see it's the logo. And I was like, this reminded me of that a little bit. Yeah. So I've broken chemistry up more thematically rather than to just go through the movie in order. Your best experience, listeners, is to just go rewatch it because, like, we could really go is. through it, but it's it's just way better to rewatch. So, absolutely, let's do this. Um, so, sets, just the look of the world, reactions, thoughts, feelings, emotions. Again, it's very iconic. It really helps create a unique look. I mean, it's very Burton-esque, right? Like, he he does it with all of his movies. There's just a unique look to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. There's a unique look, certainly, to Beetlejuice. Like, it's just, stylistically, it just makes it stand out. And knowing that they purposefully did this, like, wild clash of styles to make it look like Gotham was in chaos, it's subtle. But once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, totally. That opening scene where... The family's coming out of the theater. What I love about that is you think it's the origin story. Right. It's kind of a fake out. You think it's the origin story, but then Batman shows up and you're like, oh, 
Like you do get it, but it's revealed after the fact. Yeah, it's a great little twist. I mean, yeah, the scale of Gotham is amazing. It feels so oppressive and dark, but like the size of the true sets really make it happen. I wrote down, I love the party that Bruce Wayne is throwing. Um, This is my favorite Wayne Manor. It's like a Mm. gothic Buckingham Palace with casinos. (laughs) Like, it just is awesome. I love this version of the mansion. And a statue of the Wicker King. (laughs) I have a question for you. I feel like we've talked about this before, but like, thinking of the showdown between the cops and the soon-to-be Joker, and Batman shows up at Axis Chemicals, which is a weird thing because most of the comics and movies, it's Ace Chemicals where Joker meets his mishap and sets up base. But anyway, what is with 80s movies and big action sequences in industrial parks and factories? RoboCop, Terminator, like, we're always fighting in unoccupied factories. Well, maybe that's what it is. Like, it's easy to find those places. You're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It might be cheap to shoot in. I don't quite know. Like, if there's a... I feel like there's a Hollywood reason to do it more than a story reason to do it. Like, hey, we can go out to this old factory. We've got the run of the place. It's this old, you know chemical processing place but also they love to shoot things that then spew things like that's what (laughs) that's what these movies like to do they either want to blow stuff up so obviously you being out remotely somewhere to blow the things up is great yeah but they also love like your office where you're like the foreman is 10 feet away from a bubbling vat of (laughs) the most toxic noxious chemicals you could ever imagine it's ridiculous osha not a not a poster in sight (laughs) not a single x days since accident sign anywhere no no sir you've already said a few but this movie is iconic for its script too and some incredible quotes oh my goodness so we asked the class of 80s high what's your favorite quote from the movie and we gave them five so we gave them tell me something my friend you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight Mm. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Mm. Uh, the one that you did so great at the top of the show. If you'll do it again. I'm Batman. Perfect. Lights out. Now you want to get nuts? Come on. Let's get nuts. The line's yep. crazy. And the other one you just said about the children's hospital. <laughs> Vicky Vale. And where is the Batman? He's at home. Oh, oh wash it is tight. So yeah. good. And uh, the most popular one. I mean, half our respondents all said the dance with the devil in the pale moonlight, which is yeah. such a great line. Yeah. Uh, No votes for where does he get those wonderful toys, which I feel like when you were a kid, you quoted that line all the time. Yeah, I'm a little surprised by that. But I mean, you know, it's also like, I think five very standout quotes that a lot of people remember. So like choosing your favorite, it's hard. It's very hard. You you did mention I'm Batman. Keaton actually improv that line. He sure did. The script said you're supposed to say, I am the knight. Yeah. But he said, I'm Batman, which becomes, I mean, iconic for the trailer, for the movie, for everything. I mean, that whole scene where the goon is, what are you? And then like the way he kind of like jerks his face closer to him with that dramatic pause. And he goes, I'm Batman. Like just that is, everyone remembers that. You remember that scene. You can remember how it sounds. Yeah. Cause that guy, the funny thing is in rewatching this, that guy is such a like gravelly voice. He's like, who cares? This guy like, hey, he fell off a building. He's like, who are you? Like, it's just, yeah. <laughs> he goes from this, like, gravelly register to this, like, falsetto. Any other quotes we left out of the trivia? You want to you wanna say oh, some of your favorite quotes from the movie? Oh, 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 oh. Are there more quotes, Benjamin, you silly <laughs> Billy? We do need to let these people go on with their day at some point, but, but give us a few. Listen, everyone buckle up. Oh, okay, boy. 
Antoine got a little hot under the collar. Oh my god, that's a great one. Now for that scene, can I just can I just point out here something I love about that scene that I didn't realize? There's a callback in The Dark Knight Returns. Yep. Where when Heath Ledger walks in to meet with all the heads of all the different crime family, the first mafia guy who challenges him, he kills. I'm like, oh my god, that's a throwback to Batman, where yeah. Joker kills the first mob boss who challenges him. It's the whole like. Want to see a magic trick? Right. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I can make this pencil disappear. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So like, good. there's definitely heavy correlation between those two scenes, which I only recognized in this rewatch. I was yeah. like, oh, hold on. There's that mob scene in that movie as well. It's awesome. And they both had the the trick, right? Only in this one, it's the joy buzzer right, that like right. burns them to like a crisp. Right. Uh, we also have, if you gotta go, go with a smile. So good. So good. Basically, anything Jack Nicholson says is a quote. Let's just be clear. His lines are gold. This is not really a quote so much, but I love this part where he's like doing the like fake commercial where he's going down the like shopping aisle and he's right. like, he's been using brand X. <laughs> like, just, I don't know why that always cracked me up, That's, the brand great. X. Uh, there's the wait till you get a load of me. Sure, that's a huge one we missed. Uh, that's an amazing one. What else do we have? I'm going to keep this kind of brief, but I think I had a few more here. There's an unsung one I really love that's really subtle. No one ever quotes it, but I think it's great. It's the scene where Bruce Wayne is following Knox and Vicky Vale around oh, yeah. his own mansion, and they don't know that he's listening in. And I like where the butler's like, oh, the guest would like more champagne. How much should I open? And Bruce is like, open six more <laughs> cases of champagne. And he turns to Knox and Vale. Who are on like a probably a, a beat journalist salary? You can't even afford a bottle of champagne. And he's like six, 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 six. six, six like, six, does that sound good, good to yeah. you guys? Yeah, let's do six. It's yeah. just like a human relatable line. I love that moment very much. Well, and Keaton brought some of that like humor to it, which uh, like that and the whole scene where he and Vale are eating, and he's like, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. Can you pass the salt? <laughs> Little comical touches that yeah. he brought to the character that I thought worked so well. And then just a couple others, the line that always made me crack up, particularly as a kid, and I still think it's funny, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? There's just something about, I think it's the prop comedy. He's trying everything to not get beaten up. He has glasses on him. The carrot top level of prop comedy is just like, I have the right thing to pull out at the right time. There's just something like silly, but so funny about it. It just, the look on his face, the way uh, Nicholson plays it, he's like, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? Huh? And then just... Bruce decks the crap out of him. It's so I love, good. That's so perfect. It's like, I love your your observation that like Joker is carrot top if he was a Batman villain. Yeah. <laughs> he has props, whipping out props left and right. And then the other one, which I, I love this, and we would quote this all the time. Aaron and I would always quote this to each other. Uh, but also uh, there's a great story behind it, which is the, we already talked about it, where Joker promotes Bob and he goes, remember, you are my number one. Okay. Like, it's just really, which is not how Jack Palance delivers the line right. to Jack Napier. Right. The Palance character, Grissom. It's not how Grissom delivers it to Jack Napier, but it's an affectation of Jack Palance, which Jack Nicholson just kind of made up. Right. Like, he just so did good. this thing where he was going to, like, do this caricature of Grissom. And, like, the line is so good. And it's just, it's, like funny callback, but again, it, it kind of brings you back to the like the chaotic humor of the Joker character. And like you said, because you're insane, because you're completely 
unhinged and reality doesn't exist for you. You have like complete freedom. So yeah. he can do anything. Yeah. He can go anywhere, do anything. He's bound by nothing. There's just something really delightful and intriguing about that in this version and certainly in the Ledger version. Yes. A thousand percent. So those are some of like my really absolute favorite quotes. But again, practically anything Nicholson says is gold. Well, that's a great segue because I just I want to talk a minute specifically for a second about Nicholson's performance and it just oh. like just observations, takeaways. I mean, again, from what I've learned for getting ready for the episode, I view this movie entirely different with Nicholson as the top build, what he brought to it, how he got the role. One fun thing I want to give you is like I actually learned a little background. So in this movie, Joker's real name is Jack Napier. That's who Nicholson yeah. is playing. In Batman lore, there is no origin for Joker. That's what makes him so scary because we we dissect over and over and over again Batman's origin story. We all know where Batman came from. Until the killing joke. Right. The killing joke posits one potential origin, but generally we don't know. Which sort of becomes canon, though that wasn't Moore's original vision. Like right. it almost becomes the canon version, which is very heavily adapted in Joker, the yeah. Joaquin Phoenix version. Precisely. I thought that was interesting, as well as we should probably mention here, too, the whole Joker killing the Waynes, his parents, was right. not- that's very controversial as well. That was, like, specifically for this movie, and I think it works, and what was interesting is uh, Bob Kane later said that, like, if I had the forethought at the time, I think this is a better origin story, because oh, nice. it's like a, it's a character named, um, gosh, what was it? Joe Cool. Joe Chill. Joe, Joe Chill. Chill. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, and, and I just have to say while we're talking about it, the dude who played young Jack Napier. Oh, yeah. That guy's smile is he nailed terrifying. It. So good. He kind of looks like Jack Nicholson. He kind of looks like the Joker. It's so creepy. So good. I'm like, I would love to see that guy come back as like an older person and play like an old Joker. Yeah. But anyway, that was so good. And I think it totally like took over one of your points. About but, the, well, oh my gosh. the origin is kind of fun. Like this is another thing I didn't know before. So Jack Napier, that's Jack Nicholson's character's name, is intended to be wordplay on the word jackanapes, which is a medieval English term for a foolish fellow who resembles an ape, as well as a reference to actor Alan Napier, who played Alfred in the 60s TV show of Batman. Nice little... Easter egg. I yeah, like that. I like yeah. that. I didn't know about that. Also, Jack Napier is just a, it's a great name. It is a solid name. So two things I wanted to talk to you about with Jack Nicholson. First is his portrayal of the Joker. It's kind of a throwback to one of our big themes from our Gremlins episode, which I didn't intend Gremlins to come up so much in this Batman episode. But like, we talk so much about how the Gremlins just love doing what they do. They just love their job. And yeah. Nicholson's Joker just loves doing what he does. I just, you'd love to see it. He's there for the joy, man. He's there for the joy. Like, how many of us struggle to find true happiness in our work? And Jack Napier, <laughs> nailing it with the Joker. Oh my goodness. So, this could be a really controversial statement, so I want, I want your thought on it. I think Mark Hamill's Joker has a very iconic, unmistakable laugh when you mm. hear it. It sort of haunts you. It's very, very good. And Heath Ledger does it very differently. He doesn't do it a lot, but he does. It's sort of more iconic early on there. Ha, ha, ha. Like it's ha, ho, he, he. Yeah, ha, like yeah. a little different. <laughs> Nicholson's is very different. And I like, how do you, it's, it's a little high pitch. It's a little wheezy. <laughs> like, how do you feel about Nicholson's Joker laugh? I, I think it's fine. I never really put much thought into it. Okay. I, I think, I think it works. 
I will have a controversial statement. Ooh. Okay, everybody, put your pitchforks down. Put down your torches. I'm not a big fan of Mark Hamill's portrayal of the Joker. <gasps> and this has been 80s High, folks. Hope you had a great time. And this will be a <laughs> final episode, but please tune in to our backlog. Arkham Asylum? Is like, genius! I, what? Uh, oh my uh, God. I, listen, listen. Maybe people have talked it up so much when I finally heard it. Because I didn't watch the animated series of Batman very much. Like, okay. I don't remember it well enough. And I never played the Arkham series, like all the video games. But recently, after actually this, I was like, I should probably watch some playthrough of Arkham Asylum because that's the original of the, that video game series. It's like, and I don't know if I'll ever play that style of game, but I'll watch a playthrough on YouTube. And so I was watching it and I was like, oh, so this is Mark Hamill's performance of the Joker. And I was like, okay, like it's mm. different as is everyone else's interpretation of it. It's not my favorite by far. I thought it was fine. I didn't have any, there's nothing wrong with it, but I just, I don't know if I can put it into words. It's almost like too comic booky over the top. Again, I know it's a, it's a video game and then it's also for the um, animated series. I thought it was fine. I like Jack Nicholson's version of it. I liked Heath Ledger's version of it. I think those are the two, in my mind, the two gold standards. I will say no one wore the purple suit as long as Mark Hamill did by like hours of audio recording. And I just always loved his vocal range throughout the series. Like mm. he is able to do a Joker in so many different maniacal and joyous and terrified and sad. And like his range, on, especially coming from seeing like Luke Skywalker and then to think the Joker is coming out of his, it's the same kind of realization when you know that uncle Phil is shredder and you're like shredder. Came out of right. Uncle Phil's mouth? Right. What? But okay. I mean, maybe I need to experience more of it and I will change hey. my mind. This is based on about an hour's worth of dialogue from a video game. So listen. Jokers are like ice cream. There's no wrong flavor. You can all have your favorite. It's all right. But we did That's ask right. the class of 80s high a really divisive question. Mm. Nicholson or Ledger? Here's what we have. So classmate Greg, one word, Nicholson. That's it. Short and sweet. Uh, what else do we have, though? Dr. Nick Face says, Ledger, but under protest. Nicholson's Joker is an all-timer, too. Yeah. He, like, he didn't like having to make a choice, but he's going to go with Ledger. So a classmate who is nameless, that's the real villain. That's the true villain, the nameless yeah, villain, right. had this to say. This is a really tough one, and I love that they play such different versions of the character. The Joker in the comics seems to morph across eras, too. So could not land on answering the question. I get it. I get it's it. hard. So classmate Margot goes with Ledger, but it's close. It's a close one. I get it. It's close. Joker Jim said, this is a trick question as there is no right answer. See, Joker Jim has taken enough tests. He's like, hold Joker on knows. a second. Yeah, I know knows. what you're up to. It's in his name. He gets it. That's right. That's true. Uh, both actors did a wonderful job with their interpretation of the character. Ledger's is just much darker and Nicholson's is more lighthearted. Very true. Last but not least, Amy G. Dalla uh. says, hard to choose. Both performances overshadowed the Batman role, which is honestly the way it should be. The Batman villains are what make him one of the most interesting comic book stories. Still, I'll give it to Nicholson. It's split. I mean, that's why we keep bringing this question up. I don't think there's a wrong answer. I mean, everyone brings a little bit something unique. Even Walking Phoenix, what he has brought, 
and uh, and Mark Hamill, like you and I debated, everyone brings their own flavor to it. And I feel like they're all the right flavor. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We had this discussion when we talked about, actually, we ended up talking about the Joker when we talked about it, Stephen King's it. And we yes. talked about Pennywise because it's a very similar distinction between Tim Curry's Pennywise and the miniseries and yes. then Bill Skarsgård and the movies. And very similarly, a more comic portrayal and a much darker portrayal. And they both work for the movies they're in. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so to your point, like they're both great interpretations, but they have to exist in that world and you can't swap them. You can't crisscross Curry and Skarsgård or Ledger and Nicholson and it work. Like they have to be grounded in the movie that they're in. And so, I mean, yeah, when push comes to shove, I do have to say for me, it would be Ledger just because he took that character in such a brilliant direction. It, I mean, it literally tormented him to death, but um, my goodness, he was captivating, but Nicholson kills it in this movie. So it's not, again, it's, I wouldn't say under protest, but it's like, it's a photo finish. If you talk about whose performance you, you love more. We've already decided. I like chilling dark. I'm a a monster on the inside. So obviously I have to go with the darker interpretation. How about you? Can you answer this question? Um, Hold on. Hold on. You have a four letter answer. Leto. Okay. Got it. All right. Leto. Oh my God. Uh, Not in the running, folks. I think we're going to talk about that in this episode. Uh, No, I have to say Ledger too. Like he, he just brought such depth and three dimensionality to that character, there's not a moment or a line that is wasted on his portrayal of Joker. And it is so captivating. And the minute it's on the screen, you can't look away, not because of like the entertainment value that I feel like Nicholson brought to the screen that you're like, Jack Nicholson's amazing in this. This is just fun to watch. Like, what is he going to do next? Yeah. You were terrified of what Heath Ledger was going to do next. Like you didn't want to blink because it scared you. He was so good. (laughs) So good. We'll never get another Joker like him. He was amazing. And just a shout out to the OG. I mean, Cesar Romero did a great job sure, on the, right. the campy version, right? Like he was perfect for that role in that version of the Joker. It's so important to like, again, I'm glad you brought that up. In all seriousness, you don't get any of these Jokers without their predecessor. Like you don't get Nicholson without Romero. You don't True. get Hamill without Nicholson. You don't get Ledger without those uh, Nicholson and Hamill. Like they all build off what the predecessor did and take it to the contemporary level and what the director absolutely. needed. Absolutely. No, Absolutely. Speaking of other actors, are there any other performances in Batman you want to talk about? I mean, I don't think there's any misfires in this movie. I love the character Knox. Like he's he's, he's like, in this so much. He is, and he's very like plucky and lovable. Like I just I really like him. You know, Billy D did not have a lot to do, but he's Billy D. So of course anything he's saying, sure. you're gonna want to like listen intently. Sure. And the, the little bit he does contribute is great. I it is a bummer he wasn't in the third movie. I would have loved to see his interpretation of the Two-Face character. Oh, yeah. 100%. You know, Pat Hingle, we haven't mentioned yet. He plays... He's one of the two actors who are in all four of these movies. Oh, right. And it's the guy who plays Alfred, Michael uh, Goff. Those are the only two who are consistent actors across all four movies. And, of course, I remember Pat Hingle... As one of my favorite ridiculous characters from Maximum Overdrive. He oh, my was God. The Mr. Hendershot, the owner of the, yes, uh, the Dixie the, Diner. Yeah, the diner. Come on, Bubba. Like he's, <laughs> oh, my God. So to God. see him in this like commissioner role is great. And Kim is fantastic. I wish they gave her a little more to do than just be the sort of like pining love interest. Yeah. 
Like she starts off as this like go get him photographer who's gonna go into the like the darkest, uh, most terrifying places to get the photos to like show like to reveal the atrocities. And I just feel like they took that concept and then she just became like a lover scorned by right, Bruce Wayne's exactly. unwillingness to commit to a relationship. Yeah, I know. Nicholson and Basinger, though, in this movie, their wardrobe is incredible. Every outfit is so good that they're just dripping with. I mean, Kim looks fantastic. I will say this much. There's a shot of her, and I can't remember which scene it is, where she's got like a part of her hair that's braided. Yeah. And I don't know why. I was like, that's so cool. Like it was just <laughs> it looked amazing. So hip. Yeah, I just think everyone's great. I mean, it's so funny knowing about Bob the Goon. Yeah. That is just this like random friend of buddy. Jack Nicholson's. Uh Tracy Walter is the guy's name, but I think Bob is like an iconic character. Like everyone knows Bob. It's kind of funny. And I do like, just because we just did uh, Al Capone's Vault, it's just very timely to watch this movie with Joker and Grissom, like oh the my mafia goodness. bosses. And you're like, oh, they modeled they modeled these guys after a little bit off the legend of Al Capone, kind of. like Right. Because all mob bosses were modeled after them. Absolutely. So I'm going to combine a little bit of history class here, but there's another character in this movie that is near and dear to my heart. Oh, I know where you're going with this. It's on four wheels with a jet engine. It's the Batmobile. Oh my gosh. The behind the scenes, the under the hood. Yes. Origin story of this car, which I did not know until doing this episode, is so fascinating. Let's get into it. Go for it. You've got it. What's what's it made out of? What is the Batmobile? It is Frankenstein's monster. Let me find where I had that here. So the Batmobile is built on the chassis of a Chevy Impala, which there's been very different versions of the Impala over the years. This is like the old school boat. I went and looked (laughs) this up because I was like, my mom had the SS Impala in the mid 90s that had like a Corvette V8 engine in it. It was like a crazy hot rod. This is not that. It's a it's a giant like full-size sedan from the like 80s, which is to say massive. So it's built on that. They said it incorporated the engine of the Impala, the taillights of a Ferrari, the fuel caps of a London bus, jet engine parts from a Harrier jet. Nuts. And the sliding cockpit was also inspired by the Harrier because apparently they like made the thing and designed it. And I think Burton or somebody was like, where's the door? How does he get in? So good. Oh, there's a cockpit. That's right. Good call. Did I miss anything? No, you nailed it. Those are all the major parts. Oh, uh, headlights of a Honda Civic. Oh, right. Very cool. (laughs) Very superhero-ish. Wild. Somehow, all that comes together into one of the coolest looking cars ever put on screen. Ever. So amazing. This is a crazy fact. It's a little contemporary culture. Do you know who owns the movie Batmobile? Everyone can guess this. Let's all say it together. Stand-up comedian ventriloquist Jeff Jeff Dunham. Dunham. What the (laughs) What? Why? What? Who knew that sweet puppet money was so good and so deep that he could buy the Batmobile? That blows my mind. You know, you would just think of like, Jay Leno has it, right? He's like a car guy. Jerry sure, Seinfeld's that would all a, make a Porsche guy. Maybe he would have it. Keaton no, even. Maybe Keaton. Ventriloquist Jeff Dunham. <laughs> it's so weird. So I, you might have mentioned that it's designed by Julian Caldo and the construction John Evans put it together. You mentioned all the other parts of it, which is great. I, this vehicle is so amazing. The scene in the movie where Batman is running away from it with Vicky Vale, and he puts up his like his glove and he goes, shields. And shields. like all these shields come out all over the Batmobile, and then it drives by itself. 
Yeah. Gang, this is decades before we were talking about self-driving cars. Like, that, the vehicle is so freaking cool. There's two scenes, and I have a question on one of them for you. I mean, one okay. of my favorite is, uh, is after Axis Chemicals is blowing up, and he's driving the Batmobile out of it. Yeah. It gave me strong Aliens vibes when Ripley is oh. driving the troop transport. Yeah. Outsaving all the guys. Everything's exploding. Stuff's falling on it. Sure. It just felt very similar, which is very cool. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. When it drives out of Gotham City on its way to the Batcave with Vicky Vale, it's not driving fast. It's definitely under the speed limit in the city. Nobody follows this thing. No cop car tails the Batmobile. No goons chase it back to Wayne Manor. Nobody's intrigued. What? They're all in a 50-car pileup back in Gotham City. What are you talking every about? Every car he, in Gotham City. He junked every Joker mobile. Are you kidding me? Even just a curious bystander, if you saw the Batmobile drive and you're like, I don't have anywhere to be, you wouldn't follow the Batmobile for a little bit? You want like an ambulance chaser? They're yeah, like, there's exactly. one ambulance chaser that's going after. <laughs> I, I will say, like, my take on those shots of it driving down those, like, autumn roads so, with the leaves. Oh, my God. Beautiful shots. So good. Gorgeous, beautiful cinematography. <sighs> that car is sleek and sexy AF. It's so good. It is. I'm just going to answer the question right now. Hands down, best version of the Batmobile. Again, there have been some great versions of it. There's no contest. It is this version. It looks beautiful. Well, let's see if the class of 80s high agrees. What do we got? So we went to the class and with visual aids, showed them every major Batmobile between 1966 and 2022. Each major one that graced film. And asked them, what's the best live action Batmobile? Christopher, there's a tie. It's a torn audience. Which I am shocked. And it is a tie between the beautiful machine we have been talking about. Yeah. And of all things, the Christopher Nolan Tumblr. I don't disagree with this. I think that's my second favorite. Yeah, I think that's my second favorite because it's just so different. Mm -hmm. Again, it fit in that universe. Yeah. That universe is meant to be grounded in some sense of reality. And the fact that it is more like a urban assault vehicle or so something like crazy. that, I think it works. I think it works. I think that one looks awesome, too. It's very unexpected, that's for sure. But, like, what else is there to say? Like, the the, the later versions that Schumacher did, just go goofy. Like, yeah. the third movie is no, ridiculous. The weird. fourth one has the weird lights. Silly, silly, silly. The Pattinson one, it's fine. It just it looks very... Someone phoned it in. There's no real style to it. It's just it's well, just a thing. The Pattinson it's just a Batmobile car. and the Pattinson movie in general strikes me as the most realistic possible Batman movie. Like if, if it happened, this is what it would be like. And so like it's grounded. He's got kind of a muscle car that's a little souped yeah. up more. But yeah, there's no style to it. But it's like, oh, okay. If somebody had a really good car, this might be what it'd be like. It's grounded. Fair enough. Personally, my second favorite is shockingly from the Justice League movies, which I generally really, really dislike. I actually liked Batflick, Ben Affleck in the cowl. I liked his portrayal. And it, what, what makes me feel better about the Tumblr is through the lens of The Dark Knight Returns. In the latter acts of that graphic novel, Batman whips out this tank 
that you don't really mm. learn the origins of. Like, there's some riots in Gotham that happened pre this story, and he needed to build a more souped-up Batmobile to handle the riots. And he whips that thing out to try and handle this new super mutant goon squad. And the mm. Tumbler, I think, takes a lot of inspiration from that tank that Batman drives in The Dark Knight Returns. And so I feel better about the Tumbler. It's cool. The 2016 one, the the Affleck one, is really sort of a modern interpretation of this classic one from 89, I think. It's like, if we were to take that one and make it look like a futuristic design in, you know, the mid-2010s, that's what it would kind of yeah. look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I mean, it, it looks cool, but I, I think I just like the Tumblr because it is such a different take on it. And it was very cool to see driving around Chicago. I mean, Gotham. <laughs> So we've talked a lot of moments, but we haven't gotten into any scenes. Are there some scenes? Are there some moments that either really confused you, raised some questions, what's going on here, or that you're like, this is why I love this movie? So the entire museum scene from start to finish is my favorite part of this movie. Hands down, every second of it, love. Yep. The whole dance them defacing all of the stuff like the guys doing like the ballet moves the guys painting the statue with the green hair and the red lips you know nicholson's doing like the one-legged swan dance or whatever the heck it is and i don't know why this is funny to me he just points at george washington he's like dollar bill and (laughs) which then he kind of has a callback to which is you know what do you want my face on a one dollar bill oh yeah which apparently was going to have another callback in a deleted scene where you find out all the money he throws out to the crowd at the parade had Joker's face on it. Oh, but that was right, like right, a right, cut right. scene. So that would have been like a double payoff. But that, and then there's like the really like, I can't remember the name. I think it's, um, I can't remember the artist, but there's like a very tortured looking one. And he, Bob goes to slash it and he's like, no, I like this one. Like you just <laughs> So there's a great story behind that. So Nicholson in a later interview said this is the only scene in the whole movie that made him uneasy because he's a mm. massive art lover. And that piece you're talking about is Francis Bacon's Figures with Meat. Bacon, that's right. And Jack Nicholson very much was like, even in the movie, I can't let you guys throw paint on a print of this. It's pretty great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it comes down to the facial expressions, the acting. The Joker makeup is terrifying in this movie. It's so creepy. But then when you put the skin tone color on it, it looks even creepier somehow. It's so creepy. It looks worse. And then, of course, his whole interaction with Vale. Oh, my gosh. You know, little song, little dance, (laughs) Batman's head on a lance. And he's just like, what do you know about? And he does the little, like, bat wing flippy thing or whatever. Just... All of that is so freaking brilliant. And then, of course, there's the big crash through the skylight rescue. Where did he get those wonderful toys? Yeah. The entire thing. Oh, my gosh. How about you? First thing I didn't even realize, I didn't even learn. So after after Joker gets his poison out and all the beauty products, they go to the Gotham News and the anchors look terrible. They have like zits and their hair is all messy. And as a kid, yeah. I didn't realize that. But as an adult, Mrs. Ben pointed out, she's like, oh, because nobody can use any of the products because they're scared of dying. So no one's bathing. I was like, oh, that's genius. I didn't catch that as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of things kids will never see today, microfiche. They go to review microfiche, <laughs> trying to find yep. like history oh, yeah. on Jack Napier. Oh, yeah. One of the things I love, I love the design of the Batwing. I just think the Batwing looks so cool in this. And the whole solution, the the plot with 
cutting the balloons and carrying them off and flying past the cathedral and the full moon. And then when, when it goes up in the sky, for oh seemingly my gosh. no practical purpose whatsoever, and aligns with the full moon to make the bat symbol, it's beautiful. Yeah, that is a great shot. It looks so cool. It's maybe one of my favorite shots in like superhero movies. The Batwing, of course, is flying into Gotham. And Nicholson says, come on, I want you to hit me, hit me, hit me. And then he pulls out the like four foot long pistol oh and God. shoots the Batwing down. Yeah. So in the dark night, when Batman is driving the Bat Pod at Heath Ledger's Joker, Heath Ledger is saying, come on, hit me, hit me. Mm-hmm. I want you to hit me. And I was like, oh my God, it's the same scene again. Yep, so they the secondary vehicle going at Joker, one rule, can't kill him. So good. So in this one, a bit controversial, he's shooting like mini guns at Joker and his goons. Right. Lighten them up. And then in the Nolan version, he actually swerves at the last minute. Like Batman can't hit him because he's on the bat cycle. Yeah. And like Ledger's just standing there. Like he can't do it. He just swerves at the last minute. Yeah. So a little bit of a different interpretation. But yeah, it's cool to see the little like parallels between both of them. So at the end... Joker has drugged Vicky Vale up to the top of the cathedral and he's dancing with her and she's kind of like out of it. She's sort of limp, but we never get a scene that explains why she's sort of like appearing to be drugged. Did I miss a shot? Was something cut? Do you know why she is at his mercy? Well, she's probably, I mean, it's like a kid, right? Where you're like, put your shoes on. We're going to go somewhere. I don't want it. We're going to go somewhere. <laughs> and then you try to drag them and they go limp and they basically turn into the heaviest object on earth. You're, you're saying Vicky Vale's throwing a tantrum at the top of the cathedral because Joker not saying it's there. a tantrum. I'm saying she, it's a stall tactic. If she goes willingly, then they can get there quickly. If she's having to be dragged, it's going to take him a lot more effort and time to get her to what she probably assumes is her death, or she's being taken away with this lunatic. So I think it's just a stall tactic. Fascinating. A stall t- Okay. I'll buy it. I don't have a real answer. I don't know why. It looks like she was drugged with something, and she's sort of like kind of woozy and out of it. But I like, uh, I'll go with toddler trying to fight the insanity. That's good. Okay, a few things I just want to point out in chemistry that I think are interesting of like, just how this movie is different from later incarnations or like the greater Batmaniverse. Commissioner Gordon doesn't feel very cool here, but Commissioner Gordon gets very cool in all the other Batman iterations. Sure. I do feel like the theatricality and weaponry is very dated in this Batman. There's a lot of cape flourishes that Keaton feels compelled to do. Especially early on. Yep, a lot of those. A lot of swoopies with his cape. And, like, the weaponry just doesn't feel amazing. Like, you look at what Ben Affleck or, like, in the Christopher Nolan version had, like, it's amazing technology Bruce Wayne has. It's 1989 versus later ones. It's going to be better. And last but not least, just the Batcave is really different. Like the Batcave is very Spartan in this. There's not a lot going on in the Batcave. We don't see much of the Batcave. And Wayne hangs out in the mansion a lot more. In later Mm -hmm. iterations, Batman's always chilling in the Batcave, not Wayne Manor. But this is swapped. Okay. All right. Speaking of the night, let's also talk about the prince. Before we bring chemistry home, like, are there other observations of changes in the Batmaniverse? Well, so it's really interesting. You were finding these really, like, micro differences. And I was kind of looking macro at, like, a bigger level. Love it. And so, like, I was really studying theme in this. And I think what's really interesting and has always been an interesting concept of Joker and Batman is they are the, the same 
person. They're identical, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but one has chosen order and one has chosen chaos or order and chaos have chosen them. However Ooh, you want to interpret that, like right? It. It's that like adage, the same fire that melts the butter hardens the egg. And so you've got oh. Batman who adheres to his rules and then Joker just always wants to find a way to break them, especially the ledger Joker, right? He's like, then that's the one rule you're going to have to break. You know, like it's just, there's something really interesting. And what I love about this movie, even though it's a controversial choice against the original origin story, is having Jack Napier kill his parents. Yeah, yeah. And then he drops, accidentally, of course, but he drops Napier into the chemicals. And, you know, he's like, you idiot, you made me. And he's like, you killed my parents. You made me first. Like that yeah, whole right. concept That's of these two characters intertwined in this like lifelong duel. And of course, Ledger had the best line where he's like, I don't want to kill you. You complete, you complete me. me. You know? It's genius. <laughs> God, he was so good. And, and I think the Hamill Joker in that Batman, I can't remember the guy who voiced the cartoon in the, the Arkham games. Kevin Conroy. Conroy, yeah. They had that eternal struggle as well. And I just love that this was in a way part of that origin. And the first time, at least on the big screen, that we saw that version, it wasn't just campy clown, campy bat guy with all of his gadgets. And quite frankly, I, I want to think they understated the gadgets, to go back to your point, to not be like the show, which is get the back shark repellent, get the uh, bat, like yeah, everything right, that right. was like the deus machina to get them out of that situation. I don't know. But I like that and how like tragedy brings both of these characters to extremes, but they just, they pursue it in such different ways. But, you know, it's the whole, when the day is done, the, we're not so different, you and I. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, that is, to me, I thought was a really interesting part of these characters. But I sure. love the portrayal and the attention that they gave to it in this version, which, frankly, I did not remember that as much as I do about, you know, the Ledger Bale. Yeah, 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 yeah. Version. It's a great observation. So I, I think I've already mentioned the come on, let's get nuts really pulled that character out. It didn't feel right. It felt like Beetlejuice showed up for two seconds in this movie. I think that's a really apt observation. That like didn't strike me watching it. But now when I think back on that line, like it is really out of place in the performance to deliver it. Even that entire speech he does, it feels like it, that's a little bit out of character. See, there was this guy, this guy I knew. And he was like, yeah. he, was, he went to go off the rails. Yeah, it does feel weird. And like the mannerisms that he does, like that that whole thing. But then the come out, let's get nuts. Like that register was totally in the Beetlejuice register. And yeah. I was just like, this scene, I wish they played differently. That's good. That's fine. That's a good call. And the meeting of the crime bosses as they're zooming back towards Jack on the table, there's the man at the very front of the table that comes into view last. And I was like, it's a cameo by Stan Lee. And then I was like, Wait, this isn't a Marvel movie. <laughs> it's not Stanley. There's an old guy at the right. Who just looks He's one of the just like Stanley. This old guy with the sunglasses on. I swore it was Stanley. It's not, but <laughs> that that's an be awesome catch. Laugh out loud because I'm so used to seeing him in these movies. I was like, oh wow, he was doing it back then. Nope. <gasps> I just found a picture. You're a thousand percent correct. Right? That has got to be Stanley. We need to put that on Instagram when this comes a out. A thousand it percent. Totally we'll put like this a... up. Holy cow. That's a great call. It's like the Disney Looney Tunes crossover that we got with Hoover and Roger Rabbit. Like the one time they yes. shared 
a presence on the same screen. My boss Stanley is also seated across this table from Albert Einstein. Beautiful. <laughs> what the heck? This is a great picture. We cannot talk about the Dark Knight without talking about the Purple Prince. Mm. Now, we mentioned how Prince got really shoved into being a part of this movie. And I want to talk to you about the music that's in this. So there's sort of three main tracks I caught that show up in the movie. You've got Bat Dance, which reaches number one in America. It's his first number one since Kiss in 1986, which spent six weeks at the top of the billboard. There are music videos for all of these. And listeners, I cannot encourage you enough to go find these Prince music videos from Batman because if you haven't seen them, it exposes you to a world of Batmania you didn't know was going on. And it is so different. And this music video is like, what if Prince played all the parts in the Batman movie and everybody was as thirsty as they were in Batman Returns? Yes. Bat dance reactions to this song? Anything you feel about this? I'll be honest, I've never been a Prince fan. Mm -hmm. I don't dislike Prince, but I don't necessarily get Prince. I don't think his inclusion or his music in this movie adds anything. Yeah. I think tonally it is off. I think it, it feels like corporatism. It doesn't feel like it's there for artistic reasons. Yeah. The music videos, they're just weird. Are I nuts. mean, they're absolutely that is, nuts. But that's Prince full stop. Yeah. I don't think that man is capable of making, rest his soul, I don't think he was ever capable of making a normal sure. video. Sure. Bless you for being who you were, Prince, but my goodness, it's a wackadoodle music video. Oh, yeah. Uh, you've got Party Man, which is the song that Lawrence plays while they trash the art museum. And again, the music video, huge set, a million extras. I don't know what this one music video costs. And he's sort of playing both a Joker and a Two-Face, like his face is painted halfway down in the middle. He's amazing dancing. I mean, Prince is always known as an amazing dancer, Party Man. And then, of course, the last one is Trust. This is the, this is the parade yeah. scene at the end. Um, which actually, they really disliked the first thing he proposed. It was the song 200 Balloons. And they said no. And he like redid this new song, Trust, very quickly. Oh, I remember that one. He was like, 200 Luft Balloons. They were like, it's a no, little close to 99 Luft Can you be balloons. a little original, Prince? Come on, Prince. No, but, I, you know, I've got to agree with you that, like, it just feels so out of place. I think your word, your your observation of corporatism is right, where Warner was like, Prince is hot, just did Purple Rain, this is a big movie, let's, like, get all of our properties. Except, honestly, for the parade scene, like, I kind of feel the parade scene song does kind of feel okay. But otherwise, like... It's a weird fit. And when you see how much Prince was into Batman via these music videos and the music, it's going right. to change your understanding of Batmania. Go find them. Again, I don't think it takes away from the movie, but I also don't feel like it adds anything. With different music, I think you'd still have a, a fantastic movie. Maybe even better. I don't know. That is all I have for chemistry, which I feel like I'm saying defeatedly, but I feel like we were extremely thorough. Well, there's one more thing, Ben. I had to fact check myself. Are you fact checking live, live on recording? Well, not live. Uh, but last night I was like, you know, I keep saying a thing. Do I actually have the thing? Which oh. is the trading cards. And I was like, oh, yeah. did I ever get rid of those trading cards? <gasps> oh, no. Did I ever get Whoa. rid of the trading cards? Folks, oh, my in my God. hand right now, I'm holding Whoa. about 30 or 40 of these movie oh, tops cards with scenes, Those are characters. There's so many. Those look so good. They're in incredible condition. They're pristine. Yeah. It's like they just came out of the wrappers. Look at these shots. The night is back again. 
There's Joker. Oh, yeah, hanging, hanging yeah. on at the cathedral. So, like, yeah, you can see here I've got, like, 40, and then bonus. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Oh, here we go. I collected superhero cards for, like, a hot second. And I remember having both DC and Marvel Universe. Well, I, I still have that binder. So I'm flipping through the binder, and lo and behold, what do I also have? <gasps> They're pristine from Batman Returns. The movie cards also. So I have the cards from Batman Returns. These are beautiful cards. Like, the quality of these cards Look are amazing. Shots. Stills from the movie. So beautiful. It's got, like, the little foil stamp. I don't know if you can see them on here. I don't want to overstate this, but, like, those might be worth something, man. Those are in such great condition. So I have them in these three-ring binder sleeves where you can basically, it's got nine little slots where you can slide the cards in. They are in, I would say, mint condition. Because I probably pulled, like pulled them out of the decks and put them right into this thing. And here they sat. Well, instead of zooming for 80s high from our respective properties, uh, season four, you'll be calling from your island in the Caribbean that you've purchased with the sale of your Batman and Batman <laughs> Returns cards. Those look incredible. That was my little find. I don't normally have them on this show because I have not kept a lot of stuff. Yeah, right. You've always got great little treasures. But every once in a while, I can pull a little something out. You know, I had the stop and watch when we talked about Game Boy. Right? I had a, yeah, I had yeah. a few little things. But yeah, there it is. Well, if anything needs to happen right now, we're going to pull this little statuary head and we're going to reveal a hidden space behind the bookshelf. We're okay. going to slide down this fire pole to the lunchroom to sit at the yes. table and trade Batman baseball cards from Tops over lunch before we come back to contemporary culture to find out what happened to Batman after the 80s. Can you uh, pass the salt? Like hear like a big scraping chair across an echoey wooden floor. You know, I don't think I've ever actually been in this cafeteria. Do you remember that old saying, flying like a bat out of, well, you know the saying. Well, that's the way people are flocking to retail outlets to get their share of Batmania. Now, what do you think? Retailers think it's wonderful, and they pulled out all the bat stops. Bat shoes, bat towels, bat shirts, bat mugs, and none of the bat goods are hanging around. Well, like the Joker t-shirt, I wish I had one here to show you, but uh, obviously we've had a couple of orders of those come in, they're gone, the hats are gone, I mean, it's just uh, certain items that just continue to go. More than 100 companies have been licensed to sell the Caped Crusader. Not the movie, but the merchandise. Even his royal purple badness, Prince, has come out with a soundtrack. More hype for a movie that hasn't quite left the Bat Cave yet. I think it's going to be rad. Really? What's rad? Radical. Okay. Cool. All right. And kids aren't the only ones experiencing holy cow syndrome. The older generation has been keeping this McKinney Avenue Bat Gallery pretty busy. Old movie marquees, Batman miniatures, buttons, and yes, comic books are going like Batcakes. Batman's become hip and cool and people can come out of the closet and admit that they read Batman and that uh, comics are in vogue now. Theater employees will probably clean up in overtime this weekend. People have been trying to buy tickets now since early this morning. So as the fever builds, Batman is already in the bag, retailers say, and if the movie's a hit or not, may not even matter. Now, Batman will open in some 2,000 theaters nationwide this weekend. And considering all the money they spent on the hype, the movie producers are hoping that they too can scream, holy cow, that is, when the box office receipts are totaled. Larry Mullins, Channel 5 News, at a theater near you. Amazing lunch hour. Alfred whipped up a wonderful soup. 
I was going to say, it was great. The lunch man, Alfred, came out and he took us back to the kitchen and we had a nice little like intimate oh, chat yeah, in the really meal. Nice. That's, also a, that's also a lovely little scene where Alfred is having dinner with him and they're just like talking and reminiscing and just shooting the breeze very casually. It's him, it's Vale, it's Wayne. That's that's a great I scene. I do love that scene because it feels very authentic. That feels like a lived-in yeah. kitchen nook. Like it feels it a does. little humble. It's not a massive mansion. Uh, and that is a great scene. That's a good catch. Oh, lovely, lovely. So we're here in contemporary culture to talk about Batman after 1989. Again, this is a globe-spanning, multi-gazillion dollar IP. So I'm going to try and just focus and run through the movies where Batman is a main central character. So three years later, 1992, we get Batman Returns. This is personally my second favorite Batman of all time after, <gasps> controversially, the Christopher Nolan, The Dark Knight. That's my fave. Thirstiest Batman movie ever. So much I'm thirst. not kidding, folks. There are lines that made me gasp. The Penguin says a line where I was like, oh my God. God. Oh, yeah. Did he he's, just say what he's I heard? disgusting. He's disgusting. But this movie has Christopher Walken, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, Danny DeVito as the Penguin, and they all completely annihilate their roles. I mean, how is a movie not going to be amazing with the Walken? <laughs> the Walken. And just like, again, the set's amazing. It looks like everyone drove in from the suburbs in Edward Scissorhands. Like, the, the <laughs> Gotham City just looks so Edward Scissorhands-y. It's so crazy. But controversially this one was so much darker and as you say very thirsty warner brothers told burton to step down after this one and not do any more batman movies because there was too much backlash from parents that these weren't appropriate for children anymore it's also really goofy yeah it is pretty goofy the whole like the the zoo penguins you mentioned there's all the like circus performers like it's also just bonkers bananas wacko super wacko it's a bummer that Burton stepped down, especially knowing what we get after that, but, you know. But I still love it. Again, it's my second favorite. I think there's so much going on there. It's so much fun. And they hand it over to Joel Schumacher. Three years later, again, we get Batman Forever, the third installment. And this movie is largely derided. But, like, as a kid, if you were a little kid in the mid-90s, Batman Forever was awesome. It was great. It had to star Jim Carrey. And if you were a little kid, you loved Jim Carrey. Tommy Lee Jones, as a little kid, eh, not so much. You probably don't know Tommy Lee Jones very much. This is pre-Men in Black. What year was this? In 1995. Okay, so I would have been in, like, sophomore year of high school. Right. I feel like if you're s- between seven and nine, this movie is awesome as a little kid in the mid-90s. But, like, teens, you're starting to be like, I'm too old for this. It was not a good movie. As a teenager, I remember being very disappointed in this movie. Here's what's going to make your skin crawl. It's the highest grossing movie of the year, and it tops a billion in its licensing revenue, which makes it more successful than Batman 89. That's not surprising. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, it made a lot of money. Absolutely. I don't think anyone's going to go back and say it's their favorite Batman movie. I think it's going to be near the bottom of the list in the entire catalog of Batman flicks. And- this I, the, What I will say about this movie is this one is the one that taught me, I think anyone can be Batman, asterisk. Sure. This is Val Kilmer as Batman, by the way. I think you have to nail the Bruce Wayne part in order to be successful in the role. Oh, interesting. And I don't recall Kilmer nailing the Bruce Wayne part. Yeah, that's I interesting. remember feeling like he was not, he felt out of character. Whereas even though Keaton 
on the surface seemed out of character, he pulled off Wayne. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, Kilmer in the cowl, fine. Like, you know, he, he looks like Batman. I don't think Kilmer nailed that part as Bruce. I don't think you're wrong. But here's where I really need to put you on the spot, Christopher. Let's put up against one another and hear what you think. Prince's Trust from Batman 89 or Batman Forever 1995, Kiss from a Rose by Seal. Which Batman theme song pop R&B artist shoehorn into a Batman movie song do you prefer? I totally forgot Kiss from a Rose was in that song that movie. was like everywhere that summer. Everywhere. You could not escape Kiss from a Rose. Oh it's my not a bad God. song, no. but it, also when you hear it 72 trillion times, it overstays its welcome. So, yeah, I, I, I can't say I love either one of them, quite frankly, only in as much as neither of them would really do anything for me as like, oh, that's a great soundtrack song. Right, exactly. Last little bit one about, about Batman Forever. You know, we did talk that Billy D. Williams got a kind of the shaft for not getting to be Harvey Dent yeah. again in yeah. Two-Face. Timely Jones takes the roles here, but he does many years later in the Lego Batman movie of 2017. Billy D. Williams does voice Two-Face. Take that, Schumacher. Yeah. 1997. We get Batman and Robin. Oh boy, here we go. How are we going to talk about this? The movie that answers the question, can we do worse than Batman Forever? What if we put nipples on the bat suit? Will that solve our problems? Obviously, that is a natural progression. Check. So here's what's nuts. The cast is electric. George Clooney, massive name. Arnold Schwarzenegger, biggest action star of all time. Uma Thurman, on fire. And then, I mean, not on the same tier, but you do have Alicia Silverstone and Chris O'Donnell, both big in the mid-90s. The issue I have with this one, and maybe others would agree, is I think everyone up until this point is cast amazingly in these movies. If you know who Mr. Freeze is from the comics, he is nothing like at all a like giant hulk of a man who's throwing out his cheesy one-liners. All of the Sub-Zero jokes he couldn't say in (laughs) Running Man. He saved They saved for this movie, and he's like, oh, I have all sorts of them. I'm so ready for this. Oh, my God. The Ice Age. Like, you needed a a Patrick Stewart in that role. You needed, like, somebody like that. Christopher Lloyd. Like, you need somebody who's, like, professorial. I just think, like, that was the... One miscast. That and I think Val Kilmer. Yeah, I agree. I mean, generally this movie gets really panned and the the overarching general feedback is it's just too bright and poppy again. That it feels like it's a continuation of the 1960s Batman, like a modern take on the 1960s Batman, rather than continuing this sort of like dark world that Burton set up. And I remember there just being way too much going on. Like it felt like it's there was dense, so much. Because you're like, it's dense. we have Robin, we have Batgirl, we have three villains. Because we haven't it's mentioned Roid Rage Bane. Oh yeah, it's a the terrible Hulk Bane. <laughs> it's a terrible Bane. So Batman and Robin flops hard in 97. So Hollywood waits a long time to figure out what are we going to do with this Batman stuff. And it's not until Christopher Nolan picks it up. In 2005, we get Batman Begins. And personally, I love the Nolan trilogy. And I think Batman Begins is an awesome origin story. It's a killer cast with Michael Caine as Alfred, Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox, Gary Oldman kills the Commissioner Gordon role, Christian Bale. What do you feel like about Batman Begins? I haven't seen that one in a long time. I, I did enjoy this trilogy. I found the first movie to be not super, like the villains is kind of eh. Yeah, Scarecrow, not as, not as terrifying. 
Yeah, like it, it was fine. I, I enjoyed all of them. I, I did like his take on those movies. Obviously, you, you can't hold a candle to uh, Dark Knight. Yeah. Uh, that is such a huge standout, even though that movie did have a lot going on, a little too much going on, trying to shoehorn Two-Face in and all that kind of stuff. And the third movie, it's got its issues. Like, I mean, I, I thought uh, Hardy's Bane was interesting. You like Tom Hardy's Bane, do you? You like his performance in the movie? Hello, Batman. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. And then, um, again, a little bit of a convoluted story. I thought Anne Hathaway was great as Selena she's slash great. Catwoman. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought they were they were enjoyable. Yeah, I love it. Sorry, I have to say in the context, I am so superhero movied out. Sure. I think even sure. at that point that it's it's really hard for me to like get into these movies and stay into them and everything because I'm like, it's just too much. It's oversaturated and it has been for a long time. Yeah, I hear you. And you're, you're talking as the trilogy as a whole. So we get Batman Begins in 2005, The Dark Knight in 2008, and The Dark Knight Rises in 2012. I've said everything I have to say about The Dark Knight. It's my favorite. I love it. Heath Ledger. So good. We've talked everything about that. Yep. Dark Knight Rises, I don't think it deserves the hate it gets. I've actually loved Tom Hardy's performance in it. I think he's one of the best Banes on screen. Only other fun little fact I'll leave with the trilogy is that one of the drafts that Sam Hamm wrote for the Batman 89 movie, a large part of the plot was Bruce Wayne traveling the world training in combat and karate to become Batman. Right. Of course, we don't get that, but it comes back in Batman Begins. So we're going to jump into the future, 2012, Dark Knight Rises, the Nolan trilogy ends, 2016, we get Batman versus Superman, Suicide Squad, and 2017's Justice League. My note here is, I do not like these movies, Sam I am. Yeah, these are just great. I, I like Ben Affleck in The Cowl. I think he plays a good old Bruce Wayne who's like, just so over this, just done, just tired, doesn't want to be Batman anymore, has seen it all. I like the gull-winged Batmobile. I think it's kind of this cool, lightweight thing. But otherwise, like, I don't like these movies. Never saw any of them. I think this is the start of my getting burnt out. Oh, but this is where I can bring up the thing. So Chris is very aware that uh, what I love, one of my favorite activities every year, is I host a movie marathon. A day-long movie marathon was once a weekend long with friends uh, that I call Elegy, based on Trilogy. Mrs. Ben and I put this thing together. And it all started with The Dark Knight Rises. Oh. So I was in school, and The Dark Knight Rises was coming out, and they were going to do a midnight showing. And the AMC movie theater sold out like a three-movie ticket where you could come see Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and then The Dark Knight Rises at midnight. And so my buddy, Akersh, is the biggest Batman fan I've ever known. And we got up at 7 a.m., and we watched all the movies we just mentioned. We watched the 1966 Adam West Batman, the two Tim Burtons, the Joel Schumachers, and then went to the theater and finished. It was it was almost 24 hours of Batman. I thought you just said you were going to watch the trilogy. No, you watched everything. Holy crap. Okay. Uh, but that's the origin of that party. I don't even know if you knew that. That's where that That's where that whole jam started. I did not. I thought it started with Jurassic Park, so that's amazing. Yeah, Jurassic World sort of made like the more formal decorations. It was just the two of us on a couch all day. But I was like, oh, I kind of like this, this uh, watching everything in a series. That's amazing. And then coming down the home line, just two more. Uh, 2019 Joker, super interesting origin story on Joker with Walking Phoenix. Never written before. We've never seen this sort of Joker. What did you kind of brought it up? What did you think of Joker and Walking Phoenix? I enjoyed it. I thought it was a an interesting. I mean, it, it, it goes back to the uh, the Killing Joke origin, right? Where he's like a failed comedian and his marriage is falling apart and all that kind of stuff and. You know, obviously we got this after the Leto Joker. Sure. So I think it was nice to see uh, another interesting 
good performance. Sorry, Jared. Uh, but I, I thought it was good. Like I saw it in the theater once and I was happy to just leave it at that. But yeah, I thought it was a, a an interesting take for sure. Yeah, it feels kind of like Taxi Driver and like falling down in the Batman mm. universe. I think it's a great portrayal. Those are great comparisons. It did well. We've got a sequel coming next October, co-starring Lady Gaga coming in as Harley Quinn. That's right. Which will be fascinating. That's right. So last but not least, last year, of course, we get the Batman, a movie so dark you can barely see what's going on. <laughs> like I've already talked, very grounded. It's the most realistic Batman I think I've seen on screen of like, if this actually happened, what would it be like? Robert Pattinson getting cast. I was like, what? Wait, the Twilight guy, Sparkly Vampire is going to be Batman? And I was super nervous about him going in. But then I saw The Lighthouse, and he was amazing in The Lighthouse. Very art house sort of drama movie. Also, Cedric Diggory, rest in R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Diggory. Thank you. Let us remember. (laughs) Never forget Cedric Diggory. But I think he really crushes the Bruce Wayne side of like Mm -hmm. just the tormented destruction, depression of losing your family and fighting these people at night and like what that would do to you psychologically. Like, I think he's a real, one of the most compelling Bruce Waynes. And Gollum? Gollum is our Alfred? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Andy Serkis, like, it was one of those where I had to do a double take. I was like, that's Andy Serkis. Yeah. I enjoyed that movie. I, you know, I watched it on HBO and I was just like, okay, like people said they like it. I go in with no expectations. Again, I'm fully burnt out on these movies. And I was like, that was enjoyable. It was good. It's fun. You know, his, his the reveal of him on the train platform and he beats up the first group of goons is terrifying something in the way by nirvana plays every three minutes in the movie for some reason something now that all being said i could totally do with zero more wolverine spider-man and batman movies (gasps) if we have to reboot any of these freaking franchises i mean wolverine to a lesser extent but what about spider-verse i'm not saying there's not good versions of it but like there's so many good characters why do we keep having to like yeah shove these same characters down everyone's throats like there's lots of other good storytelling totally and so we've got the sequel to that movie slated for october 2025 and the rumors right now two and a half years away from this movie is clayface who was actually pretty interesting when done frighteningly which actually the arkham games did really well i don't know that that's ever been portrayed on screen before outside of animated Clayface? Yeah, no. I mean, Clayface is hilarious in Harley Quinn. But that's animated, right? Yeah, it's animated. Yeah, I haven't so we seen haven't seen like action. a live action portrayal of that villain before. No. Interesting. Okay. The closest we get is um, the Spider-Man universe's equivalent of Sandman, which shows up in Spider-Man 3 and is terrible. But uh, okay. I think Clayface could be really terrifying if that's the way they go. Interesting. All right. I'm going to hop off the movies for a second. Sam Hamm came back to write six issues for DC Comics in August of 2021 called Batman 89. And it's sort of he picks up where Batman returns the movie, leaves off, where sort of him and where he understands Burton's vision was going to go if Warner Brothers didn't ask Burton to step down after returns. Okay. This is one of the few pieces of Batmania graphic noveling I actually haven't read, but I'm so compelled. I really want to read that and find out where that story went. That'd be interesting, yeah. I did cave. You know this. You've seen this. I broke down a little bit. I wouldn't say it's a midlife crisis. I'm not to midlife yet, but I I was really excited (laughs) by this. But I did break down and buy the 3,306-piece 1989 Batmobile Lego set. Yeah. Everybody, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. How far off are you? How many pieces? 
What do you mean? It's done. I finished it in like a like a week. I was so excited. Oh, it's done. Okay, all right. It's all beautiful. Right. The cockpit slides open. You turn the engine and like machine guns pop out of the hood. It moves. It drives. The steering wheel works. It's it's such it's so beautiful. It's it comes with Lovely. the figures. It's so great. That's awesome. So we come to the last part of contemporary culture, which is sort of one of the main reasons I picked Batman to finish us off here. Because when you're listening to this, listeners, roughly two weeks ago or a week ago, The Flash opened in theaters, June 16th, 2023. And The Flash is sort of a continuation of the whole Justice League world. And of course, Barry Allen, who plays The Flash, we know that he can run so fast, he can time travel. And so in this movie, he travels back in time to save his family, but inadvertently alters the future. He becomes trapped in a Mm. new reality, which General Zod from the Superman world has returned, threatening annihilation, and there are no superheroes left to fight Zod. So Hmm. Barry, which I don't know how, somehow travels to a different alternate universe and finds our Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman, to help him out. And he also tracks down Supergirl to help out too. But Keaton is putting back on the cowl after three decades. Apparently also Batfleck will be in it. Ben Affleck's also returning to put on the cowl. Ron Livingston from The Office Space is also going. Basically, they saw the Spider-Man movie and they're like, we can do this too. We're cross universes. Have you watched the trailer? Have you read much? I want to know what, what you feel, how this could go. Saw the trailer, I think, when we went to see the D&D movie, right? Ooh. Didn't they play the trailer You're there? Right. You're right. So that is the only trailer I've seen. I think it could be interesting. I have no interest in seeing this movie. <laughs> Not only am I over superhero movies, I was over DC movies before I ever saw one. The DC Universe ones. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be curious to see what people think of it. And if it comes on to like Max or something and it's free, I'd probably end up watching it just out of curiosity. But I think it could be interesting. I have faith in the in Michael Keaton to do well. I don't have faith that whoever's running DC properties knows what they're doing. Because they've failed miserably so many times. And the only people who seem to have been successful are these people that come in with these little passion projects. Like Nolan came in and did his. I can't remember who did the movie Joker. But like these people coming in doing these like random things do well. When they try to do their little connected universe, they seem to always fall on their face. It's my interpretation. I don't know. What are your thoughts about it? It's very hard. And I totally agree with you. I uh, Very randomly, I watched today, you know, GQ does this like, this actor breaks down their career kind of videos all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they did yep. James Gunn, again, director of Guardians of the Galaxy, um, breaks down his like top five superhero movies. And his number one was Spider-Verse. He said something similar to you of just like, no one can do these multi-universe, multi-dimensional movies right, but Spider-Verse somehow nailed it. They did it incredibly yeah. well. It's perfect, Yeah. but no one else seems to be able to do it so hard. I am encouraged that Keaton is not just like a gag. Like He's not just showing up for a scene. He's like, I'm Batman, and then he's gone. Like He's going to be a central character for like this, the second half of the movie after they get to him. So I'm excited yeah. to see it. He looks interesting. I think he's a great Batman, so I'm excited to see him back in it. It'll be a lot of fan service and nostalgia. Barry Allen and, and the Flash story is like not a comic I've ever cared about. I'll see it. I don't know if I'll go see it in the theater. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's exciting. I'm, I'm just excited he's coming back to the cowl. But you and I aren't the authorities. We we do, you and I do operate in a pop culture democracy. So we did ask our classmates of 80s High. What do you think? Technically, we said, how do you think 71-year-old Michael Keaton's return to the cowl will go this summer? Yeah. 
And uh, classmate Greg says, Keaton is Batman, in my opinion. So it'll be great. Mm. Dr. Nick Face says, poorly. Batman's entire thing is that he isn't a superhero. He has no powers. He's a rich boy who's conferred upon himself the privilege of physical violence against agile street criminals who would absolutely demolish any septuagenarian in a fight. Oh my God. It'd be nice to see working class people beat the crap out of a billionaire for putting his body between them and their next meal. It also presupposes a Gotham in which nothing has changed over the past 40 years with regard to Batman's role in fighting crime, thus exposing his ineffective (laughs) self-importance. The only way the movie works is if Batman announces he's giving up his fortune to fix the income inequality upon which his very existence is predicated. Wow. Dr. Nickface has delivered to us a thesis. Basically, he just wrote a syllabus for his own class at IUB next semester. So in the fall, everybody, take Dr. Nickface's class on deconstructing Batman in his role in modern day America, income inequality, the wealth gap, etc. <laughs> that was a good breakdown. Part of this, I, I do like something that classmate Nick said that was really interesting. So uh, maybe two months ago, we got the trailer for Blue Beetle, which is really exciting in, in the DC universe. Blue Beetle was sort of the first Latino or Hispanic superhero. So very mm-hmm. sort of like progressive step in the comic book world. But the first live action movie is coming out. And uh, Zola Maradueña, who played uh, Miguel Diaz in the Cobra Kai series, the main sort of fighter kid in the Cobra Kai, if you've seen it, is playing Blue Beetle. But in the trailer, there's a shot where someone's like, what is happening? Like, call Batman. And like one of his family members yells, don't call Batman. He's a fascist. <laughs> which is, which I, I feel like Professor Nick would, would be on online with that. Quite possibly, yeah. Our no-name classmate says, fine, question mark. I have low expectations for The Flash, and the multiversal crossover stuff seems fun, but I don't figure Keaton will actually be all that prominent, and it'll be weird if so. Also, Mm. the DC movie universe is just so bad that... eh. Did you write that one? Is that yours? Yeah, that was just me trolling. That was just uh, you trolling. Time to get my opinion in here. Oh my god, so good. Who do you have next? Uh, next, we have Margot. Classmate Margot says, incredibly, I'll probably go see The Flash just for that. So mm. much like this, people would go just to see the Batman preview and like leave the theater. I feel like Margot's just going to show up an hour into the movie. Like basically, okay, at what minute does Keaton show up? Right. I'm going to roll yeah. in, watch that. Okay, we're done here. And then- Actually, that's yeah. a great idea. Margot, you and I might be on the same level. I might look up the same thing. <laughs> Uh, Joker Jim says, I think it's going to be epic. The original Batman! Exclamation mm. point. Yeah, Jim, you get it. You know what's up. Absolutely. Last but not least, Amy G. Dalla says, I have no faith in the DCU. Preach. Fully expect this to be terrible like all the other films from that studio. Amy, I'm going to have to agree with you on this. But you know what? As I do with all of these reboots, recalls, comebacks, whatevers, I will hold a little candle of hope that maybe they finally, on the 57th attempt, learned their lesson, and maybe they'll finally figure out how to do a superhero movie correctly. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. So there is a lot of controversy around The Flash, and unfortunately it's because the title character, Barry Allen, The Flash, is played by Ezra Miller, who had, to just put it mildly, a really rough year last year. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty because it feels the wrong thing to do to call out the details when someone is 
from my view, in crisis, in a, an area where they need a lot of help and they need a lot of support. But Ezra had been in a number of different situations last year that put them in assault and in battery and home invasion. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of inappropriate relationships with children and just in a really concerning tough spot. Were they perpetrating all of these onto others or the the recipient they were, of them? Unfortunately, they are the perpetrator of a number oh of cross-world crimes. Okay. Which is very concerning and unfortunate. And of course, the the societal parts are the most important, the, the lives of the people and families that they impacted. But of course, Warner Brothers has a lot of money invested in this movie. And now their title character, their title actor is in the news a lot for really horrible things. Yeah. And so it wasn't until August 15th of last year that Ezra publicly made a statement and quote said, having recently gone through a time of intense crisis, I now understand that I am suffering complex mental health issues and have begun ongoing treatment. I want to apologize to everyone that I have alarmed and upset with my past behavior. I'm committed to doing the necessary work to get back to a healthy, safe and productive stage in my life. And this follows like right after being charged with some crimes. Yeah. Some pretty bad crimes. And Warner Brothers around this time also publicly threatened to replace Ezra in the movie and spend the money to do the reshoots. And so Ezra said, I'm going to go get clean. And then just this year, gosh, actually just a couple months ago, April 24th, 2023, during a QA and a at the Warner Brothers lot, the director and producer of the movie, Andy and Barbara Machete, spoke publicly about Miller for one of the first times ever. And when they were asked about Miller... I guess this would have been the director, Andy, said, Ezra is well now. We're all hoping they get better. They're taking the steps to recovery. They're dealing with mental health issues, but they're well. We talked to them not too long ago, and they're very committed to getting better. So the release of this movie is sort of clouded under some challenges. Ezra is certainly a very polarizing and complicated human being. I think that it undeniably will hurt the opening of the movie. I think it's going to hurt the movie a little bit. I don't know how much the impact is going to be. Yeah. My only take on that would be not knowing the full details to at least say there have been people in scandals who take no ownership in their actions. If people are taking ownership and taking steps to right their wrongs, that there can be a little forgiveness, not forgetfulness. That doesn't mean absolution Mm -hmm. from any terrible things people do. But there's something to be said that somebody's like, I screwed up and I'm going to fix it. It's on me. Again, that is irrespective of knowing a lot of the details that Ezra found themselves in. But I would just say, I would hope we'd all realize there's something to be said about somebody who's willing to live up to their mistakes because we've all made them. Yeah, I totally agree. You know what we should talk about? What's that? Is in 2023, how Mm. Batman 89 holds up to the perspective of the two foremost authorities on it, Ben and Chris, hosts of 80s High. Fantastic. I'm just going to breathe in a little of this green gas real quick. Clear my head. We've talked a lot. I just need a, a olfactory palate cleanser. So I'm just going to huff some of this gas here. I'm and sure, I'm Christian, will, I'm Christian, don't do that. Um, I'll see you down the hallway. I've befriended master puppeteer and comedian Jeff Dunham, and uh, he's invited me to slide into the Batmobile. And Beautiful. I'll, uh, I'll cruise out. I'll do some donuts in the parking lot. School's out for the summer, yo. And I'll meet you at math class. Awesome. 
All right. Well, I rode the parade float here. I'm I'm high on Smilex. I'm just <laughs> living my living my best self. I've got I got a smile on my face. Yeah, you do. You do. It is very wide. Yeah, Ben. I just have one question for you. Why so serious? Oh my god, he's so good. <laughs> oh, Ledger's man. incredible. We're All not right. here to talk about Ledger's Joker. We're, We're here not. to talk about Nicholson's Joker. Mm. How would you? bring this home. How do you think Batman 89 holds up today? Ben, what can I say? This movie still delivers yeah. the aesthetic, the score, the acting, the story, the set pieces, the themes. It all works really well, especially considering all the issues it had between that decade of failed attempts to get this movie actually to production. Keaton's casting and the whole outrage of that, Nicholson's diva demands, Vicky Vale's recasting, a writer's strike, countless rewrites, stressful set conditions, and a budget ballooning like it's bursting with Smilex gas. <laughs> <sighs> so let's just get it out there. A few things about this movie stick to the landing like a bat wing that took a bullet to its cockpit. Vale gets plenty of that dame treatment between her damsel screaming, a command to shut up. Oh, yeah. Bruce tells her to shut up. uh, And using her lady wiles to woo a lunatic. She starts off as this confident, capable professional. And as I mentioned earlier, I wish they could have stuck to that throughout instead of making her a lovelorn Uh, swooner for Bruce. Mm -hmm. Bechtel test failed, I say. Super failed. While the Prince music, as I mentioned, isn't bad, it does feel more like that gimmick than a good choice, but such are the ploys of vertical integration. Now, those things aside, there are a few plot moments that are confusing if you think about them too much. We've talked about a few of them, but the story moves along quickly enough that they can be easy to miss or forget. Now, as we've mentioned, Nicholson seals every freaking scene as Joker is such a mesmerizing and chilling character. His insanity is that ultimate freedom, leaving him able to do anything, and with a twisted humor at that, and Nicholson pulls it off masterfully. The makeup is amazingly creepy, and again, that museum scene is truly delightful from start to finish, and I attribute a lot of that to Nicholson and his acting, his performance. Keaton successfully proves that comedic actors can nail drama and darkness better than most. A lesson will continue to get again and again with actors such as Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, Steve Carell, many others. And again, I've said this before, while I like the bit of humor Keaton brought to the role, that Beetlejuice let's get nuts moments just, and that whole speech really falls flat for me, uh, pulls me out of the movie. And so that was, it just always continues to not really sit well with me. But overall, I do think I love so many elements of this movie, probably more than its overall sum. As I mentioned earlier, it's kind of similar to what Burton has expressed because it's not a movie I do or will return to often, but when I have, I must say, it always leaves a smile on my face. So what do you think, Ben? Is this movie a Smilex product or has it been using brand X? (laughs) (laughs) That was such a great closer with leaving a smile on your face, which is also how I feel about season three of 80s High, but we'll get to that. Okay. I love this movie. Uh, I've already gushed about all the details of what I love about it. I I think one of the strongest points, first of all, is the performances, but also just the world building. I love the set. 
I love the vehicles in it. Like, because they really built it, it feels so authentic. It feels so real. It feels so neat. And I just love, like, all the courage and risk that everyone took in making this movie to be so different than what everybody knew and loved about Batman, the 1966 Burt Ward Adam West Batman, to just take this crazy giant risk solely based on this one professor's theory for my you and two very well performing comic books in the mid 80s and they're like oh based on these comic books let's spend 60 million dollars mm. to make this movie and they did it i love it and every time i watch it there's so much more to go learn about it i love it executive producer ben mckicker said batman fits into the dream of the young person he fits into the desires of the old person as fans grow old they have a nostalgic feeling about this film so you have a generational audience all at one time. It's like they never get tired of baseball. They never get tired of Batman. And I don't think they ever will. I think what else is a cool observation that this movie can sit wholly alone. Like Batman 89 could have been fine if no other Bat movies came afterwards. Wholly contained. You didn't need to know the origin. There's no post credits. There's no end scene that's like, oh, where's he going next? What villain's coming? Right. It stands alone. However... All these movies came after it. That, in a nutshell, listeners, is where you get all of superhero movie culture afterwards. Mm -hmm. That you get these massive licensing deals where there's all these toys and action figures and clothes and spin-off cartoons and things like that. But also like a movie series. Thinking about, here we're going to do a comic book movie, but let's plan out there's going to be six more entries or whatever. Which, on one hand, is why we're all burnt out. But on the other hand is why Hollywood's made a gazillion dollars off of these movies because Batman showed them how to do it. Mm -hmm. And watching this movie and really think about Batman, here's what I alluded to earlier, and here's what I'm going to leave math class with. For as long as I can remember, I've told everyone that my three favorite IPs in order are Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, and then Batman. Oh yeah, that's right. You had this little bomb to drop on us. And after re-watching Batman... And studying everything about this movie, I am here on 80s High to declare to the world, Batman is now number two. Wow. It has dethroned Ghostbusters. Wow. But I think it just comes to down to like such a bigger, richer world that Batman mm. has in all of its iterations. I think of the hundreds of hours I've spent on the Arkham games or reading the graphic novels or rewatching or watching these movies and animated series and harley quinn just how much content i've just consumed but how big and reinventive of a world there is and ghostbusters although is beautiful and still my number three now is such a smaller world compared to like the world of batman and the performances and the depth of the story still incredibly unique but uh yeah i think batman has now become number two beautiful world deeply introspective I love Batman. I love this movie. I'm so glad we revisited this. Wow. That's one heck of a plot twist. My goodness. Whoa. Holy smokes, man. That brings us to the end of season three, our junior year of 80s high, flipping through your yearbook. Do you have any parting thoughts, emotions, reflections on our junior year? I've really enjoyed this season. I think we continue to sort of up our game each season and we've gained some listenership, which has been lovely to see because this is a labor of love. Uh, we're making $0 off of this, folks. Uh, it's a, we're losing money on it. So it is truly a labor of love. 
But that's fine. I mean, we didn't go into this expecting to be future Bruce Wayne's where we are. (laughs) Not at all. all. We are living in our gothic cathedral mansions and all that kind of good stuff. You know, I haven't told you this about the listenership. If we keep on the momentum that we are, by the end of senior year, I think we could have a number of followers on Instagram that is in the 1,980 area and if we can finish senior year with like 1980 something listeners that would be so incredible that would be so good i mean let's get past that but let's get there sure let's let's at least get there by the next episode maybe this summer we'll get there by this summer yeah exactly i want you to tell all your friends about me who are you ben and chris 80s high 80s high podcast yeah I loved a lot of the topics that we did. I think we took some fun, I won't say risks, but we we took on some huge topics, some really expansive topics, big things. I enjoyed how we tackled those and hopefully the listeners do as well. Absolutely. I think we nailed some like cool variety, like you said, big big world-spanning properties and hyper-focused things like uh, the Flash in the Pan that was the Snorks. Or your television special, Al Capone's Vault. Very specific, which I thought was cool. We got great balance this season. I loved your music picks. You did a lot of music this season, which was really cool. I liked a lot of your music picks. It was really great. I mean, Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Rocket! did that one. Slippery When Wet. Yeah. And then, you know, we did some, like, a lot of great movies, which is always fun. Very heavy toward the end of the season with movies. But sure. again, the way we, we pick, that's just how it works sometimes. Uh, and then we did like broader topics like uh, classic board games. We did, you know, summer wheels, big wheels, bikes and trikes and all that kind of stuff. Halloween. We talked about we the holiday. We tackled Halloween as a- That's incredible. As a cultural phenomena. And we've had some great guests. We got to talk to an author. We got to talk to the CEO of a tabloid newspaper that media was empire. That was great. Uh, we've had some- favorites back. We had a new classmate, Corey, join us for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, it's just been great. It's been great. Oh, yeah. I loved how many properties actually held up. Like, Quantum Leap is still so good. Reading Rainbow, I learned so much from. Clue could compete with any comedy coming out today. Easily. Mm. Mm. Who Framed Roger Rapid is so good. Like, so much of this stuff holds up so well. I learned so much. We did, again, we did so much music. I, I sincerely learned a lot about music production and the music industry. We learned about the NES light zapper technology. I thought that was cool. Yeah. It was just very educational. I will say I miss from season one our listener engagement. I wish we had more of our listeners on the show, you know, doing the morning announcements, recording their audio memories of the property and and sending that into our email so we could play it on the show. You know, a lot more, a lot of people taking the surveys. I get it. It's your junior year. It's a stressful year. You're taking AP classes. You're thinking about where you want to go to college. It's hard. There's a lot going on. But, you know, that's something I really miss. And hopefully we can, we can somehow bring back in our, in our final and senior year. Awesome. But I'd be remiss without saying, I think the biggest thing about season three, Master Christopher, the show sounds so good. I mean, the oh. editing is world-class. It is <laughs> professional. Like, I, when I'm listening to my podcast throughout the week, you know, the ones with real sponsorships, people who are making bank, sound professional because they've got paid editors doing this. And the right. people who don't sound terrible. It's like leaving a voicemail for your friend is what it sounds like. <laughs> but we're like NPR quality, and that's all because you put an insane amount of time into this that makes a sound as legitimate as we view ourselves to be (laughs) and make it an enjoyable listening experience. So, hey, go on that buy-me-a-coffee coffee coffee site 
Coffee.com. Coffee.com. Kick a couple of nickels Christopher's way to uh, help pay him for all this labor he's putting in because he's who makes the sound so dang good. And hopefully you're willing to make the sacrifice to continue to make us so wonderful in our senior year of 80s high. Very nice of you to say. And yeah, we'd love any support you can give. There's that. You can rate, review, Apple Podcasts is a great place. Spotify, you can rate. Uh, or just tell people about us. That expands our listenership. That's, uh, you yeah, know, if you enjoy the show and you know somebody who's also a nostalgia 80s file who just loves to kind of reminisce about the things you forgot you loved so much about that radical decade, uh, that's what we're here for. And we're happy to deliver it to you. Is there anything else, Ben? No, I think I've said all there is to say for season three, junior year of 80s high. Well, how about this? I'm going to say something about season four <gasps> of 80s high. Teaser! That's right, Ben. I have a bit of a plot twist for you. It's a post-credits reveal! Several times this season, you've alluded to junior year. We've talked about it just now. Being that hardest year of school, you're taking placement tests. I've mentioned it's the year where everyone kind of finds their groove. Uh, and rips from my own high school experience, it was also my first lesson that summer's were no longer sacred spaces, free from school. Oh, yeah. You see, I took AP English junior and senior years, and it was the same teacher for both. And over the summer, between, she assigned us homework. Monster. We had to read two books, everybody. Two. Tale of Two Cities and The Great Gatsby. Oh, my God. Those are huge to read over summer. Dickie and Fitz put a pall over my otherwise pristine summer of all-day video game sessions, epic friends weekends, and sleeping until 2 p.m. Oh, my God. Having said that, I'm going to pull the same move for this podcast. Not out of revenge, Ben, but out of necessity and hopefully anticipation. In fact, I've been scheming this idea all season, making casual suggestions that we swap places so that you could end the season and I could start the next one. But it was all Benjamin a ruse for this very moment. Oh dear. Because our next topic, which I'm revealing now, is going to be a big one. An exciting one. One that requires more prep than usual. So I want to give us plenty of time to take it in and to savor it. And Taking inspiration from you, this is something I've never experienced before in any of its incarnations. Mm. Not the 2009 movie, not the 2019 miniseries, nor the 1986 graphic novel that started it all. Oh. So we're going to go back to an alternate 1985 America where costume superheroes are part of everyday life. When a masked vigilante named Rorschach, uncovers a plot <gasps> to kill and discredit oh, all past and present superheroes. Oh my God. As he reconnects with his retired associates, only one of whom has true powers, Rorschach <sighs> glimpses a far-reaching conspiracy involving their shared past and catastrophic consequences for the world's future. I have literal chills, goosebumps, hairs are standing up on my forearms. Oh, that's right, everybody. On the first episode of season four of oh 80s High, we'll be diving into the graphic novel by Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, and John Higgins, a book that changed an industry and challenged a medium, asking us the chilling question, who watches, who watches the, watch the Watchmen? Oh, ah! my God. 
Chris chills again. Oh my God. This is something I feel like I have to take in, but I'm like, there's so much because I want to do all the things and two weeks isn't enough time. So I've literally been planning this since I think sometime in season two. And I was like, I've got to reveal it at the end of the season. So here we are finally. You seem pretty excited. Chris, I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> it's a quiet excitement. I'll just say this much. It's a, uh, are you dumbstruck, starstruck? What's going on? We're going from Batman to Night Owl, sandwiched with a summer in between. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited that you haven't read this. I straight up demand. I am making demands that we okay. we watch them. You read the graphic novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I want to watch the movie with you this summer. Okay. Afterwards. Yeah. yeah. This world, this story. Oh, Jesus, Chris, this is so big. <laughs> it's so good. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So Amazing. Once again, some of our topics are dovetailing. That's just how it works sometimes. You chose Batman and I was like, well, we're doing more superheroes. Ah. <sighs> They're all kind of looping together. It's it's pure coincidence or perhaps fate. But uh, I'm very excited about this. And hey, we have a whole summer to take it in. Listeners, if you also want to get reacquainted or visit this property for the first time, you can go pick up that graphic novel, get it from your library, read it, take it in. And we're going to talk about it when we reconvene after summer in September. Hey, classmates out there, have a great summer. Have a good time. Live it up, because after senior year, the big world opens off after that, and we cannot wait to see you on the other side. Stay sweet, never change, and we'll catch you for the next season of 80s High. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.